so sorry to hear about Esther, but if anyone can, she's a fighter. You know, we're all falling for her. Yeah. Good afternoon. Uh, we're going to get started. Um, this is the um, meeting of the City and School District Select Committee for Thursday, September 24th. And um, I'm join um, the chair, Supervisor Kim, will be joining us shortly. She's uh, in at another meeting. So I want to acknowledge um, the clerk who's covering today's meeting is Derek Evans. And I also want to um, let you know that SF uh, GTV uh, staff, Charles Crimina and Jen Lowe are covering today's meeting and uh, the recordings will be available to the public. So any announcements, uh, Mr. Evans? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. And that's the only announcement we have today, Mr. Chair. Okay, thank you very much. Then can you uh, please call item number one? Item number one is a hearing oh, do we, regarding update. Do we need update. to take roll call or anything for this? Uh, no, Mr. Chair. Okay, so we should uh, let the audience know that we have um, commissioners Matt Haney, Sandra Fuhrer, Jill Wins, and Supervisor uh, David Kampas joining us today. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Item number one is a hearing regarding updates on the work of the Hamilton Family Center and other organizations and city departments to address family homelessness and requesting the Housing Opportunity Partnerships and Engagement Office and Human Services Agency to report. So, as you know, this is an issue that um, we've been covering off and on, uh, whether it's in this committee or um, through our our uh, supervisors committee or at the Board of uh, Education. And we're happy to uh, have a discussion around these issues because it hasn't gone away. And certainly uh, we know that we're trying our best to address uh, children that are homeless. Um, that's part of the San Francisco Unified School District. So um, I'm not sure who will be coming up to speak. I don't have any script for this. So I assume it's, Okay, I'm sorry. Can you just come up and announce it? Um, yeah. Good afternoon, commissioners, uh, supervisors. My name is Jeff Kasitsky. I'm the executive director of the Hamilton Family Center. I'm happy to be here today to present to you on some of the work we've been doing with the school district around family homelessness. Um, I've got a slide. Um, I don't know. It's not up on the screen, or I'm not sure if you all are seeing it. Um, but there's also a handout as well uh, with the same information. That, uh, Looks like this. Okay. Um, so as you know, uh, last year the Hamilton Family Center entered into a partnership with the San Francisco Unified School District to address family homelessness in the schools. Um, the way the partnership works is we've created a hotline and school district staff um, uh, 
teachers, parent liaisons, uh, social workers can contact us and let us know a family is about to lose their housing or has recently lost their housing. We will go out to the school within three days and register those families in one of our programs, um, either to help them keep their housing or to help them find permanent housing. The purpose of this was to build on the relationship that school district staff have with families in need, a trusting relationship. I know as a parent and a, um, uh, with children in the Unified, the school district is one of the most trusted institutions in my life. And it's been a great uh, to be able to work with the school staff to help families facing a, a housing crisis. The other reason that we did this is because it helps us get to families much more quickly than we were able to in the past, given the current uh, way the services system works in San Francisco. We find out much more quickly when we get referrals from the Unified as opposed to people who are referred through, through walk-ins or other ways. We're finding families within days of them becoming homeless as opposed to, to months. So it's been a, a great success so far. This is a pilot program. Um, it's funded entirely by a grant from Google, and we greatly appreciate their support of the work that we're doing. And I'd like to report to you just a bit on some of the outcomes of this partnership so far. Um, we started this in December uh, 2014, but really in, in earnest in January 2015, uh, so through the second semester of the school year and then uh, so far the, the first month of the school year. During that time, we've worked with 45 different schools. We've received over 125 phone calls or emails um, on the hotline that we've set up for the school district. Uh, 52 of the calls, really all we needed to do was provide consultation. The staff just needed to know what resources were available, and they were able to assist the families without Hamilton intervening. However, 73 of the families needed more uh, assistance. Of those 73 families, 26 of them were about to be evicted, and we helped pre prevent all of those evictions. 18 of the families uh, were found new housing. We're able to provide them with a temporary rent subsidy. Um, eight of the families are currently searching for housing, and we're confident those eight families will find housing in the next month or so. And then 21 families either didn't follow through or for whatever reason weren't eligible for our programs. In addition to this work, uh, we have attended uh, four different staff meetings of uh, unified employees. We've reached over 200 pupil services staff. We've produced three educational videos for staff that are available on our website if you're interested in seeing those and a related handout that we give out to, to all of the schools. Um, I should also point out that in addition to the partnership we have funded through Google, um, we've housed an additional 174 families uh, who have children in the San Francisco Unified School District who came to us through other, other means. Um, but in total, um, during the past year or so, we've housed over 200 families uh, with students in the San Francisco Unified School District. Um, for 2015-16 school year, our goal is to rehouse at least 32 more families through our partnership with the school district and with Google, and 24 additional eviction preventions. We're planning on working with the district to continue training staff to help them not only understand how Hamilton can be of assistance, but understand all of the services available when a student becomes uh, homeless, and also to identify uh, five schools to do more in-depth work at, and we're currently working with um, Kevin Truitt on that. So a little bit on the outcomes. Um, as you know, it, from 2007 to 2013, uh, homelessness in the school district uh, increased dramatically by over 95%. Um, 
There were 697 families uh, who were homeless in the school district. It peaked um, at about 1,400 families, uh, 1,460 or 1,470 during the past year. Um, since we began this partnership, it's reduced um, to its lowest level that it's been since 2010. Um, it's decreased by 163 students, and that tracks pretty closely with the number of students that we helped house. So I'm excited about um, those outcomes. Um, just looking at the bigger picture and, and homelessness in um, it's on the other side of your handout. Um, it talks about ending family homelessness by 2019. Uh, you'll see that uh, the blue line on the graph is the waiting list for family shelter, which isn't the only indicator of homelessness in San Francisco, but it's sort of the canary in the coal mine. Um, in 2013, it peaked at 287 families waiting to get just a shelter bed, and it was taking them up to nine months to actually access a shelter bed. Um, since uh, Hamilton Family Center and our other sister organizations and the city uh, began increasing uh, funding and services provided to homeless families in, in late 2013, early 2014. We've seen a dramatic decrease in the number of families who are waiting uh, to get into shelter from a high of 287 to a low of 122, and that's really great news. That's over 50 percent reduction. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do. Hamilton Family Center's goal is to end family homelessness in the city by 2019. That doesn't mean families won't become homeless again, but it means when they do become homeless, it will be very brief, uh, 90 days or less, and they will be back into to permanent housing. Um, that's sort of the nationally recognized definition of what it means to end, to end homelessness. Um, we, to get there, we need to, um, some more things need to happen. Uh, we would like to see the city set aside 30% of all affordable uh, family housing for, for homeless families. Uh, we need to continue scaling up our eviction prevention and rapid rehousing programs. And just as an example, um, we have a city-funded program to provide rent subsidies to families. Uh, it starts in July, the beginning of the fiscal year. We are full. In, so we can now not take, and it's already, you know, it's not even the end of September. We have fully um, subscribed into that program. We can only take new families when other families exit. Um, and uh, so that is um, concerning because what I've seen in the past month is that as Hamilton and other organizations are running out of slots, the waiting list is going back up again. So it dropped to a low of 122, and that's the lowest it had been since like 2008. Um, and now the waiting list is back up to 134, and I think it's going to keep creeping up unless we can find ways to invest in these programs. The good news is we know this works. We've proven it a couple of times. If you look at the graph in 2010, we had an infusion of federal dollars for about a year or so. The waiting list went down briefly, but when, those, when that money goes away, the waiting list goes back up again. Um, it, it's really common sense. Um, the um, Supervisor Kim's office uh, and the mayor's office um, and the Human Services Agency have been working really closely with the providers on this. Um, just all praises to everybody involved. Um, uh, Director Trent Rohr brought in a um, significant amount of money from the state uh, through a program that uh, Joyce Crum will talk about momentarily. Um, I really feel like folks are all rowing in the same direction, and if we can just continue to add more resources, we should be able to address this problem by the end of 2019. I also would just want to thank um, you know, I cannot give the school district enough praise and thanks. Um, the staff have been amazing to work with. Um, Kevin Truitt has sort of helped deal with all bureaucratic hurdles that were put before us. The line staff, as you all know, are just phenomenal, um, really go out of their way to help 
um, families in crisis, you know, are calling us on Saturdays and Sundays and, and really at all hours. Um, it's just been really great. And as a parent with kids in the school district, it's just great to see this institution that's a big part of my life does um, such a great job in the community and is such a great partner. And I hope that this will, this will continue. Um, and with that, I'll open it up to any questions anybody might have on the, the work we're doing. Okay, thank you, um, um, Jeff. Um, are there any questions? Um, I have a quick, quick one. I mean, I know it's only been about a month into the uh, month or so into the school school year. Um, have you seen any trends, one way or another, in terms of uh, calls you're receiving for this first month of the school year? Um, Unfortunately, so we're still sort of working out some of the kinks in reporting with the school district and actually have been meeting with uh, the folks from Stanford who work with the school on data collection. Um, so it, right now it's sort of difficult to see trends on a month-by-month month month basis, more like on a quarterly or semester basis. And, but what we saw last year was a decrease in the number of students who were homeless. But can't really say yet this year um, one way or the other how things are, are going. Are, are the referrals coming from things that teachers notice, uh, counselors notice, principals notice? Yeah, that's I mean, a um, great question. What I'm finding is that the, the parent liaisons, the folks who are dealing with truancy, are the ones who call us most often. They usually know right away when there's a problem with a, a child not showing up to school. And I would say the um, second most common calls are from, from school social workers. Uh, we're getting many more calls from elementary schools than we are from middle and high schools. Um, uh, so that's, that's sort of been a significant trend, and it's really, um, even though every single school uh, in the district has at least one homeless family, we're generally getting calls from the same, like, 20 to 25 schools. And then um, my, my last sort of question would be, um, in regards to the families with the children, is there, are there um, kids coming from a certain age, or are they just spread all over the place? Yeah, that's another um, great question. We did take a look at that, um, and it, it's actually evenly distributed across grades. It's really interesting. It was like seven or eight percent of the in each each one of the grades, and then we also have data on the um, pre-K and, and K as well. Okay, um, um, Commissioner Fewer. Um, yes. So thank you for this presentation. And for your praise of Kevin Truitt and his team, they're, I agree, they're quite fabulous. So my question is, um, do you keep any other demographic information, for example, the ethnic background race of these families, the, um, the income of these families? Also, I am just concerned that if we are seeing a decrease because families have left San Francisco and left their district, I was just wondering because I feel like there should be a correlation between the students we see that are leaving our district and also if it correlates with your demographic information. So we have had a really um, a drop in our enrollment of African-American students, quite yep. frankly. So I'm wondering if our demographic information might correlate with yours and we can sort of, sort of um, I guess, formulate a picture about kind of what is happening to our families in general in San Francisco. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. Um, so the, we do collect all of that data. And um, 
Earlier this week, we met with the folks from the Gardner Center at Stanford to talk about how we can work out a data sharing agreements um, so that I mean, we've got a, the same issues around confidentiality and, and HIPAA requirements that I'm sure the school district has to address. But we're talking about how we can marry our two data sets, make them, uh, I think, anonymize is the word, um, and then marry the two data sets to try to look at those trends. Um, I can tell you anecdotally, you know, we haven't seen a difference um, in terms of the referrals we're getting from the school district is really no different from the referrals that we're getting from the general population. Um, the, I would tell you also that the highest, in terms of the ethnic groups that we serve, that the, um, the largest group that we serve is the um, Latino population, um, especially around the eviction prevention program. But I think it would be worth looking at um, the, what's happening to the families and where they're getting placed. Um, most of them uh, will choose to keep their children in the San Francisco Unified School District, at least till the end of the year, but we do have at least half of the students that we're serving in a rapid rehousing program um, needing to move out of San Francisco. And whereas that is unfortunate, our, our stance is that um, right now there's you know, over 2,000 students that don't have a stable place to live, and our priority as a community needs to get those, get those kids stably housed. Um, and we look at the Bay Area um, as a region um, as opposed to sort of it being defined as you know, San Francisco, Oakland, Alameda. Many of our families um, continue to work in San Francisco. Um, and are living in places like Richmond, um, in Alameda County, Contra Costa County, and even as far out as, as Vallejo. Um, we're very conscious of making sure that when we give rent subsidies to families that uh, they're going to be able to increase their income during a two-year period of time so that they can be self-sufficient in terms of paying their rent. So we're, we're careful about not... Um, but, being, and, and, but although families make, ultimately make their own choices, but most choose to go... Um, a place that's more affordable, but we have recently, due to some changes we've made internally, and have hired a bunch of real estate brokers actually to work for us on our staff. They've have like sort of rattled the trees or whatever, and uh, shaken the trees, and have found some housing that's affordable in in San Francisco. And we've been able to increase actually from 1314 to 1415. We've increased the percentage of families that we're placing in San Francisco, which has been which has been great. That's great. I am wondering also if um because normally what happens when a student leaves our district, that they then have to apply for an out-of-district transfer. And if it's mid-year homelessness is so disruptive already to a family and to a student's academic career. And so I'm wondering if we could have, I'm just sort of formulating my mind, but I've been thinking about this, some sort of exception for these students that have suffered homelessness, and that is why they have moved out of San Francisco. And if they can continue their academic year at that school without disruption, I, um, this is something I think that we should work on with our educational placement commissioners push back if you don't agree or have other ideas. But I was thinking if it's of no fault of their own, it wasn't a family's choice to move, but they were forced to move because of homelessness or evictions, that maybe we can help with the family with adjustment by allowing that student to stay that academic year rather than invoke sort of our residency policy and have them reapply to our district. And many times we do not accept students in certain certain schools that are highly requested. So Yes, thank you for that comment, Commissioner, and we would love your assistance. So we have looked into this issue because um, it's, it's an important one because most of our families want to keep their children in, in our wonderful school district. 
Um, so what has been uh, — what the current law states around families that are homeless is once they become housed, um, they uh, are, are required to — they can stay in the school district till the end of the year, and then they have to transfer or apply for an interdistrict transfer, and they usually won't get the same, the same school that they're in or often won't. So we posed a question to HUD um, and uh, also the Department of Education. Um, what about families who are still receiving a rent subsidy? Um, they should still, because if a family gets into transitional housing in Oakland, they actually still count as homeless, and they can stay in the unified until they move out of that transitional housing, which could be for two years. But if they're getting a rent subsidy from us and they sign a lease, they're no longer considered homeless. Um, and therefore, you know, so we're looking at least for like a two-year runway while they're on the subsidy. Can those kids stay in the school? And um, the only way to change that, from my understanding, and it's a lot of laws and regulations I'm sure you all are more familiar with, but my understanding is that would have to be changed at the federal level um, for that to occur and that people in the rapid rehousing program uh, need to be — would need to be sort of added to this list of exceptions that occur. And it, it, it make, doesn't make any sense that it's not. Um, and I'll be attending in November a conference of uh, educators who work with homeless children um, and we'll, we'll hopefully be able to talk to some folks from the Department of Ed about it at that time. But would love to work with you on, on um, leading that change for, for the whole country because it's really unfair the way it works right now. So I'd love to work with you on that. Right. And we could even do a first pilot program with the families that you're serving and see how that works and how we could implement that. But I think that we could probably do that on a local level with our own student assignment policy. In fact, we may want to put that on the agenda since the chairperson of the student assignment committee is with us this afternoon and maybe have that as a topic of discussion. That would be wonderful. It yeah, would be great to you. have that discussion. I um, think just that the other issue, I'd be remiss if I, if I just didn't also mention that another solution to this is that we build more affordable housing and we have more long-term permanent rent subsidies for low-income families in San Francisco because right now we don't have the tools to help that many families stay in the city. We have right. a, a little bit, but really the, the mayor um, and the board of supervisors um, put together some funding to pilot a program for long-term rent subsidies for homeless families to allow them to stay in San Francisco. Uh, the homeless prenatal program is, is going to be running that. Um, it hasn't — it just is going to launch, I think, next week. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully that will demonstrate some good success and we'll be able to create more opportunities for families to stay in the city because that needs to be part of the equation. Right. I think that this is great that you're offering some services, but actually the key to this is prevention. And I have a mentee who has lived in shelters, many shelters, throughout her life. She said she can't even think about it. It was so sad. She goes, Sandra, I can't even go back there. And so knowing the impact just on this one individual, I know that all these families are so adversely impacted by this, the, this homelessness situation. So the key is prevention, right? Well, so. And I think that we can really grow that piece of our partnership with the Unified because um, Frankly, that's been the most effective um, part of our relationship because oftentimes when families come to us that they're about to be evicted, it's like it's too late. I mean, and um, and we tell them that not to leave till the sheriff gets there, but it's generally too late. But with the partnership with the Unified, we're finding out like much much faster. And as we continue to train the, especially the social work staff, so that they 
kind of put the word out to families that that's available to them. Um, I'm hoping we'll be able to to prevent even more families because it costs us less than four thousand dollars to do that. Um, once a family gets into the shelter, it's like $120 a night to keep a family in a shelter. And the rent subsidy program costs, you know, upwards of $20,000. Um, and it also has the added benefit of not only for the family, it saves. When we help a family keep their housing, we're generally saving a rent-controlled unit um, in the city, and that's just so critically important right now. Okay. Uh, could I have um, Commissioner uh, Haney before we bring up the th other three speakers on this one item? All right, this is more technologically advanced than we have. Um, well, first, I want to thank you for, for your presentation and for this program. I think it's, uh, you know, extraordinary, um, even first when I became aware of it, but then to see the level of impact and the number of families that have been served by it, it's just uh, really an extraordinary and, I think, innovative partnership um, that we should grow on. Um, I have a, a question uh, both about the capacity and the future of the program. Um, so I, I see that there were 18 families that were rehoused um, this past year or up until now, and there's a, there's a goal of 32 families um, this coming year. I'm, I'm wondering about um, what the capacity of, uh, that, that you all have, and um, it, it's, it, I have a sense from that that potentially there are more families that can be served. Uh, and um, particularly in light of the fact that there are still um, 1,300 families, that, which is 1,300 too many, um, who are homeless currently, uh, what role this uh, program can have in terms of capacity and what are maybe some of the barriers or challenges to, to meeting that capacity, um, if there are sort of what's the next phase of this of this program look like if it is to be maintained and supported in the sense of, um, you know, how can we maybe put more um, intensive outreach at certain schools where, they, where there's, there's clearly a greater need. Um, and, then, and then I think um, kind of in a, in related to that, you know, if, if this part of the partnership is working, the eviction prevention, the rehousing, uh, how do we partner further to making sure that families and, and students are better served on site uh, at the schools and sort of think about a deeper partnership so that we are meeting housing needs and then also meeting the educational, social, emotional well-being of, of, of the students. So kind of building on now a greater awareness and knowledge of the challenges that homeless students are facing or, or students who, who, who and families who may be on the verge of homelessness and then how do we work together to build on this to meet the, the, the broader set of needs that we know that these, these families, and particularly in our case, the students have. Okay. Um, as far as the capacity goes, what's listed here is how much money we have left in our, our Google funding. Um, in addition to what you see there, uh, we'll serve an additional 75 families in our eviction prevention program and an additional 220 families in our rapid rehousing program. It is likely that the majority of those families will be SFUSD families, but this is what has been set aside through the funding in our, our Google grant. And, um, and it's what's funding the – when we get these referrals, that's, that's the funding we're using. Um, the rest of the money um, – that we have has various requirements layered on top of it, and sometimes we can serve people through the referral, sometimes we can't. But um, So this is just a portion of our capacity, but it's what's been dedicated to the, to the Unified. Um, in order to serve all of the families, um, 
with the various with prevention and with uh, rapid rehousing and long-term rent subsidies, uh, we estimate it would cost about thirty million dollars over a three-year period of time. Which is, you know, if we break it down, it's really ten million dollars a year, which is really not that that much money. Um, and then a long-term investment of um, maybe nine, eight to nine million dollars a year to maintain the system with an advanced, uh, with an enhanced capacity. Really, what's happened is. Um, we used to have an emergency system that, that worked, that families who were homeless would get into shelter pretty quickly and they'd get housing pretty quickly. We just had this huge backlog that was created uh, during the recession that hasn't been addressed. If we can put 30 or $40 million into the problem, we can really kind of clear the decks, address homelessness, um, and, and not have families that are homeless for months and months and months and years. Um, and really just have the system address families that are in crisis. Um, it used to work that way. It could work that way again, but that's essentially what, what it would take. Um, and we, I'd be happy to share with you, um, Commissioner, the, the data that we've put together. We actually have a, a spreadsheet and a flowchart that would show what, exactly what that would, would look like. Um, and we've been talking to um, both members of the Board of Supervisors, uh, members of, the, um, of city staff, um, as well as private funders to try to, to make that, that dream a reality. But we're, we're confident um, that this will work. It is just a matter of resources. Um, and to your last question, um, the, I, I think the school district actually does a fairly good job addressing the needs of home, of identifying and addressing the needs of homeless students. They certainly do a better job of identifying the families than I think than the overall system does, given the close relationship that school staff have with the families. Um, uh, through the, the FIT program, the Family and Youth in Transition. Uh, once, from my understanding, once those families um, have been identified, they are given access to um, extra tutoring. Uh, they're given access to things like um, assistance with uniforms and transportation. Um, it certainly would be, you know, the other thing that I think we're working on with the city is how do we do a better job of coordinating all of our efforts together um, in terms of collecting data identifying families that are homeless, identifying what services they're accessing. It would be wonderful if there is an opportunity to um, make that system so robust that the school district is also able to share that data and we could share information back and forth. I think that would be incredibly helpful. But I, I also think that the resources and all of the tools um, to assist these students um, with their educational needs are actually in place. It's really a matter of identif identification and then, and then coordinating with the nonprofit providers that are also working with that families. So I think if it breaks down anywhere, it's probably in the lack of coordination between the schools and the nonprofit staff. We, we do our best to work together and we meet with the FIT coordinator um, monthly, but um, there's only one of her and there's you know 2,000 students that she's trying to help navigate the system. Um, but I will say overall, I think the school district does, does a, a pretty good job um, at, that, at that level. Thank you very much, Mr. Kaczynski. You got it. All righty. Thank and you. Let me call up uh, the uh, next speaker, and I'm going to turn it back over to our chair. I'm, I'm just uh, stepping over here to do technical assistance. Okay. So um, next up, I'd like to call up Jennifer Friedenbach um, from the Coalition on Homelessness. Hi, thank you, um, Jennifer Friedenbach, Coalition on Homelessness. So I just wanted to kind of um, add to uh, Jeff Kaczynski's comments um, and f do a little bit of big picture stuff. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, um, which 
Senator Fewer had, Commissioner Fewer had mentioned around demographics. And so um, we have a situation in San Francisco where um, people who um, are victims of oppression are overrepresented in the homeless population. And this really mirrors a lot of data in other areas. So, for example, there's an overrepresentation of African Americans in our eviction data for San Francisco in terms of who's getting displaced. We also have an overrepresentation of African Americans in our homeless population, particularly our homeless family population. And um, they make up about 50% um, of all the families uh, seeking shelter. 21% um, Latino, other mixed, and about 14% white. So those are families seeking shelter. Another piece of who um, we're talking about here is um, families who are living in hotels. And they have some similarities to um, families who are in shelter, but some really significant differences as well. And I think it's really important from a policy perspective to recognize that. Uh, the reason that we include families in hotels and why San Francisco Unified and the federal government and everyone includes them under the definition of homelessness is, is that the impact of the housing crises is exactly the same. And so um, for uh, families who are living in hotels, it's primarily an immigrant community. 59% um, um, are Asian or Pacific Islanders um, and a much smaller proportion of African Americans, about 3%. And the other significant differences between the two groups is around income. Um, so you have a very small uh, portion of families in shelter who um, are working. Um, and so it makes up about 11% of that population. Um, whereas um, in terms of unemployment, um, uh, it's less than 10% for the families who are in SROs, although a large portion of them are underemployed and working in part-time jobs. So about 35% in part-time jobs, about 60% in full-time jobs, still not earning enough to afford decent housing. Um, and so I spoke a little bit about the impact, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. And I think from the educational perspective, it's especially dramatic. Um, and, you know, part of I think part of why we're here is that, um, at least from our perspective, we're choosing as a city to have so many families experiencing homelessness. We're choosing this through inaction, right? And so we're needlessly having families, and especially their children, suffer to such great extent um, by not putting them in housing. Um, and so in terms of political will and in terms of choices, in terms of our budget, all of that, um, we have a situation in terms of the education of kids um, where there's big impacts on the school district because there's an increased um, loss in school, which, of course, um, affects the budget for San Francisco Unified. Um, we have about half of homeless children um, being held back for one grade or more and 22% for multiple grades. And I think this is particularly shocking. Homeless children have an 87% increased chance of dropping out of school. So I know we focus a lot on, you know, um, on this issue in San Francisco. We already have a high dropout rate. Um, homelessness is an independent indicator for these things, um, aside from just poverty. So it just it bumps it up so much more significantly, even though they have poverty in common with, with you know, with some of the other students. Um, the other piece is just the sheer trauma, um, instability of relationships, um, the behavioral impacts, the um, nutritional needs not being met, um, the increased um, chance of witnessing violence 
Um, oftentimes, homeless parents um, uh, find that their children, because of their homelessness, are in situations they never would have chosen um, to have them witness, and yet um, they're in the situation where they're where they're witnessing this. Um, example of this: we had a recent survey, a recent uh, study that was published by UCSF. Um, that found that 28% of women reporting having to have sex in exchange for a place to stay. Um, these are mothers I'm talking about specifically, not just women in general. So, of course, their children are with them. This, this is what, you know, what we're forcing folks to do and go through um, by, again, our really, um, you know, horrendous inaction, um, for, for lack of a better description. And I talk about that really significantly because we, we did an analysis over the last decade of housing for homeless people in San Francisco. Um, we've done a decent job on single adults in terms of keeping the population stable. Of course, we should do much better. And, and, um, and, but when you compare that to families, we see just how negligent we've been for families. So for families over the last decade, only 7% of the housing um, developed for homeless people has gone to parents with children, 7%. When we're talking about uh, 3,300 children plus all the adults, we're talking about more than 40% of the population being um, intact families with kids. So incredibly negligent um, in terms of our commitment to children and housing. Um, we've... Um, you know, we talked about, and Jeff talked about how much progress we made, and we are making some progress. When you look over the data over many years, what you see is a couple little blips where every time we've done some work, we've seen a decrease in the number of people on the wait list. We've seen, um, uh, you know, tremendous progress, um, but it's not a sustained commitment. And so really what we're talking about from the Coalition on Homelessness is a sustained commitment from the city. And if we're going to be able to keep our families in San Francisco, if we're going to make sure that our families have a safe and decent place to live, um, we need to have a sustained commitment. And that means a really uh, true investment in permanent affordable housing. And, you know, we can do this um, pretty dramatically just in the affordable housing developments that are coming online over the next five years. We can do that by increasing the number of units that are set aside for homeless households. Um, we could put a, lo a local operating subsidy in there and very quickly house families in that permanent affordable housing. It takes a sustained commitment from the city. So it's not a one-time, one-off you know, kind of thing that, that is going to solve this issue. Um, it means a true commitment. Um, on the, on the flip side though, you know, <laughs> um, we're an affluent city and we've got a big budget and we're making a lot of decisions around our budget. And, um, the beautiful thing is, is that we can actually solve this issue. We can meet those goals that Jeff laid out. We can return our emergency system to a true emergency system. We can quickly get people in shelter or rapidly rehousing, house them as they become homeless. Um, we can make sure that everyone in families with kids who are currently homeless are in housing. Um, it's not rocket science. And, um, we, and I think you all have seen our five, our, um, roadmap lays out exactly how to do it. Um, one policy issue I just wanted to bring up that's outstanding um, that we haven't had progress on is around public housing. Um, we did an investment last year. We were counting on a little bit less than 100 units a year going to homeless families in our public housing stock um, at Petrero and Sunnydale specifically. Um, the Housing Authority has decided to halt any placements into housing. And uh, because those um, developments are being rebuilt over the next 15 to 20 years, um, they're not placing anyone in those public housing units. So as people move out, they're going to keep them 
become vacant. We may be talking about really long-term vacancies. Um, you know, we really want to see either um, those vacancies used for homeless households, or if the city can't do that, then to find alternatives because we can't we can't afford to stop that exit out of homelessness um, into public housing. So if we're not going to do it in public housing, we got to find an alternative and make up for those units. Um, so two, you know, the two big things, just pushing, um, addressing that public housing piece, um, making sure that we um, invest in permanent affordable housing, and just want to echo um, the commissioner's point earlier about um, prevention. This is another piece that we've, you know, kind of made halfway progress on. Um, we've done some work um, that's been amazing. We've been able to you know, keep literally thousands of families in San Francisco from losing their homes through the interventions that have been invested in, which is amazing. Um, but we're not all the way there yet. We don't have right to counsel for tenants. We don't, we haven't done the outreach to um, everyone who's at risk of losing housing that we need to do. So I'll conclude there. And uh, thank, thank you, you so Ms. much. Thank you, Ms. I, I merely made the indication because there are actually <laughs> committee members that would like to ask you questions. Okay. And so I want to acknowledge them. Um, Supervisor Campos. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, thank you, Ms. Friedenbach. Um, so as I understand it, 3,300 children in San Francisco are homeless. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Um, and do we know of those, uh, how many are in the shelter system? And Yeah. So we, um, basically that number comes from uh, San Francisco Unified um, data. And uh, what we... Um, what we did is, because it doesn't include children aged zero to five, is that we extrapolated based on 10 years of data on the shelters on how many homeless children um, proportionally are aged zero to five, which is about 27%, and we extrapolated from the unified district data. So based on the San Francisco unified um, district, um, it's about a quarter who are in shelter. Um, about, um, they had about 13% um, who were in um, motels or hotels. And then the largest portion um, is the families who are doubled up, living in garages, moving from family to family, um, which is the more typical situation for families, which is why they're so hidden. They don't present as being homeless, and therefore um, I think is why it's not in the public spotlight as frequently. Uh, thank you. One, one thing we've seen is uh, a growth in encampments, uh, not only in my district, but I think it's every part of the, of the city. Uh, any idea of, of uh, what, to what extent that involves families with children? There are definitely families with children, more typically um, in um, uh, vehicularly housed. And so... Um, Probably in the Mission District, we probably have about 20 families that we've been able to identify that were living in vehicles um, that we've seen when we've done outreach. That's not scientific at all. Um, the San Francisco Unified um, District um, uh, data overall has less than 20 families that are unsheltered. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, um, you know, ideally that would never occur. And I think any time a family becomes homeless, the alarm bells start ringing. Um, and we, you know, move as quickly as possible to get them into housing because that's uh, not okay. Thank you. Commissioner Haney. Yes, thank you. Um, well, thank you for, for this, this presentation. And I think, um, you know, we, we, we've talked a lot about this before and about how essential this conversation is to ensuring the success of all of our students in SFUSD. And I especially appreciate you highlighting 
uh, some of the educational consequences of, of homelessness and how if SFUSD is going to do our job and fulfill our responsibility, how we need to be involved in, and, and engaged and helping to lead in this conversation. Um, I wonder if you could speak uh, to, to the role of SFUSD a bit since we're in a joint committee space here and specifically potentially to the role of the school board. Um, you know, this is an issue that's incredibly important to us. I know you, you've put out a, a five-year plan and, um, you know, you can speak and I know you always do <laughs> openly and honestly about what you think we can do in addition to obviously the work with Hamilton. Uh, what is our role as SFUSD and as, as school leaders in helping to work with you all to solve this problem? Yeah, I think a big piece of it, uh, Jeff Kaczynski nailed, which is um, having that touch point with with homeless families. And so, and especially in the elementary schools, of course, you know, you have that very close relationship in these um, really deep communities. Um, I think a lot more can be done um, at the school to make sure that, um, you know, that students are identified, that, you know, the secretaries are on board, and, you know, everybody who is involved, you know, sometimes it's the... Um, uh, cafeteria worker in the morning who, you know, the kid comes in really upset eating breakfast and she or he is the one who knows what's going on. And so I think making those links is really important. On the bigger picture level in terms of um, what can happen, you know, <laughs> um, and I made this thing about choicefulness and this is about political will, right? This is about making this an issue that our policymakers are taking seriously and that they are going to do what needs to happen to end family homelessness. And I think that's where the school board plays an incredibly important role. You know, commissioners are elected officials. You have, you know, a certain authority. You have um, connection to your voters. You have a microphone, you know, all of that. And so I think, you know, using the school board as a vehicle to really um, help create political will. And that, of course, goes for the members of the Board of Supervisors as well and really drawing attention to this issue and, and continuing to put pressure on it. Thank you, Commissioner. And actually, Ms. Friedenbach, I just had a clarification question on Supervisor Campos's uh, question about the number of homeless children in our count at roughly 3,000. Are they included in the in the homeless count that we do that we just did this year? No. So, so they would be on top of the 6,000 plus. Oh you no, know, I'm sorry. They are included. The homeless count. Um, is an undercount because of the invisibility right. of homeless families. Right. Um, but, you know, we have no way of knowing exactly which families got counted in the count and which families um, are counted by San Francisco Unified. And so um, they should be included, mm -hmm. um, but we can't really say for sure. Um, there's, like, all these different data sources we're trying to pull from. None of them are right. perfect. It, it would be great to get a sense, and I think... You know, I know this is a much larger conversation, but, of course, you know, yesterday, L.A., um, came out declaring a state of emergency on homelessness. Um, and I know that all the cities across the country are grappling with rising homelessness, but I thought what was most striking in the article was the comment that families and young families are becoming the new potent symbol of homelessness in cities across the country. And, you know, whatever percentage of our homeless count children are, I mean, it could be a third, it could potentially be a third of our homeless count. Yeah. And, and that is a significant number, and, you know, it is really, I mean, w the city is obligated, of course, to house everyone, but we are really obligated if, you know, a third to a half of our homeless count are children 17 and under. That is an astounding number and, um, and a sad statement for any city to be able to demonstrate in their, um, in their data pool. Yeah, and I think, so where the homeless count 
and the San Francisco Unified Data Intersect most strongly is around the sheltered. So most of the point in time count is inclusive of families who are in shelter. Okay. And they get counted, but you know, like the ones on the wait list don't, and et cetera, right. et cetera, and the ones in hotels. Um, but um, but the, the San Francisco Unified um, number of students um, is is pretty close on shelter. It's a big undercount on the hotel numbers because that's another number we know for sure how many children we have. Um, and there's, so there's a lot of San Francisco Unified School District kids that are living in hotels that are not identified as homeless by the district. And that, that might be another role that the district can play to make sure that those families know that they can get right. additional services. Thank you. So we have one last presenter um, on this item. Oh, it, well, sorry, I was, I was, I meant, Joyce Crum and Bevan Dufty as, as a team um, a pr presentation from the city side. I know that Ms. Crum will be coming up first from uh, HSA, our Director of Housing and Homeless Services, and then of course um, Bevan Dufty um, with the Mayor's Office of Hope. And I, I do apologize, um, we're getting close to 4.30, and so if, you know, if we can keep the presentation sure. succinct, although this is a very important issue, so if there, right. I don't want you to gloss over things, but if there are slides that you think we can skip right. over, that would be great. Thank you. Um, so good afternoon, supervisors and commissioners. Um, as Supervisor Kim said, I'm Joyce Crum with the Human Services Agency. And I'm actually opening my presentation up with the 2015 homeless count. So um, we conducted uh, a homeless count um, the last week of January. It's biannual and across the nation. Anyone receiving HUD continuum of care funds are mandated to do a count. And it's unlike uh, a count or a homeless definition that we use in the city and county of San Francisco. So just so you're, you're clear, I want to read what the definition is. Um, the, uh, the count has two primary components a point-in-time enumeration of unsheltered homeless individuals and families, those sleeping outdoors, on the street, in parks, in vehicles, and a point-in-time enumeration of homeless individuals and families who have temporary shelters, those staying in emergency shelters, transitional housing, or using stabilization rooms. So, um, the HUD definition of homelessness is, um, it's very narrow, unlike San Francisco's, because um, when we use uh, homeless funds in San Francisco, we have a San Francisco definition, which includes those that are doubled up. But the homeless uh, definition for the point in time uh, count is living in a supervised publicly or privately owned a privately operated shelter designated to provide temporary living arrangements or with a primary nighttime residence that is a public or private place not designated for or ordinarily used as a regular sleeping accommodations for human beings, including a car, park, abandoned buildings, bus or train stations, airports, or camping grounds. So we are limited uh, when we do the um, homeless count as to who we can count. But saying that, um, our 2015 homeless count, uh, based on the HUD definition, there were 627 people and 22 families were identified 
222 families were identified in the count, which is a decrease from 2013 by 42. Um, let's move on to... It was mentioned earlier about um, using prevention monies to keep people housed and prevent them from being homeless. So, and th this is all data for the last fiscal year, the fiscal year that ended June 30th. So we had 234 households that were provided with rental subsidies. And 200, uh, 120 families housed, households provided with shelter diversion systems. Um, Connecting Point is our door, our front door to family homelessness. So um, when families come in, um, we try to divert them from shelters if they can use some sort of subsidies or if they can uh, need some assistance to keep them housed prior to um, going into the shelter. Jeff, I'm going to move on to um, just a little bit about uh, services that are provided in our shelters. Our shelter stays in family shelters are 90 to 180 days. They operate 24-7. Um, um, meals follow a um, San Francisco Shelter Nutrition Project menu. There are children activities. They can use it as a mailing address. Um, a, a wide array of support services that are included, um, all centered around case management services. Uh, part of um, Services that are provided to homeless families are um, the Access Child Care, and it's a um, child care that is um, based around families that are in the shelters. We have tra Jeff spoke about transitional housing. It's a 20, up to 24-month program. Um, most people are very successful after being stabilized for up to 24 months where they could then move into uh, rental subsidies in permanent housing. Um, it's a program, and it's not um, considered their permanent residence, so they do qualify for subsidies after they leave. And they don't pay rent during this 18- to 24-month period. Um, just a highlight of who the programs are, there's Clare House, they have 13 units, Hamilton Transitional Housing Program, 20, Cameo House, and it's, uh, I, I do want to note that Cameo House is operated by the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, and it's for women exiting the criminal justice system in collaboration with the adult probation and then uh, Safe House, and it's 10 slots for women escaping prostitution. So let's talk a little bit about our family permanent supportive housing. Um, Jenny spoke about the loss units and some of the recommendations um, that um, were made to, to the mayor and to the city around policy issues. Uh, so in our portfolio, we have 198 uh, shelter plus care units. Shelter plus care are um, rental subsidies that come directly from HUD under our continuum of care grant. And then there's the local operating subsidy program, which is a city-funded program. And we have 280 units currently with more units in the pipeline within the next five years. 
I'll skip the services because they're pretty standard um, in our permanent supportive housing. Um, we do have a um, program that we were uh, that we competitively um, procured through the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Um, we are one of five cities across the United States. Um, the program began in 2012 as a program grant, and then we fully implemented in 2013. And to date, we have placed 39 families, and these are all families who have children in the child wel welfare system, and it's called Families Moving Forward. So we've placed 39 families. Six of them are in our loss portfolio. Um, 22 are holding um, deep rental subsidies. And um, Jenny mentioned uh, about our deep rental subsidy program that, or Jeff, that's just beginning with homeless prenatal. So it's similar to that, but these families have kids that are uh, in the child welfare system. I'm almost through. Um, Jeff spoke about the CalWORKs housing subsidy program. Uh, it's a statewide program. Uh, our director, Trent War, was very instrumental in working with Will Lightborn, the director of uh, Department of Social Services, with getting the state to commit to working with CalWORKs families and getting some rental subsidy uh, money to local uh, agencies. Um, so it was implemented in 2014, and I did have numbers. So we have placed, or Jeff and his team, has placed 162 families in subsidies. And I think what's most successful about this program was the idea of putting uh, a RFP out for a broker, someone that can... All they do is look for units, be they in San Francisco or in the Bay Area. We did limit it to um, uh, several counties in the Bay Area because we didn't want families moving so far away from their, uh, their net of friends and family. So um, it's been um, very successful. We are hoping that it will grow. And last, I wanted to talk about... Um, a mandate um, that San Francisco under the HUD uh, continuum of care must implement by 2017, and it's something called coordinated entry. We currently have a pilot program dealing with homeless vets that everyone must go through this coordinated entry, and they're looking to house the most chronic homelessness. But we in San Francisco uh, put out... Um, uh, uh, an RFP to get a consulting firm to come in and work with us to look at the front door of homelessness for families and have everyone walk through that front door and everyone be tracked through that front door. And it's a way of collaborating with all of our shelter and family providers and sharing data and making sure that a family walking into the front door get exactly what they need. I can't leave here w without commenting on um, a comment one of the um, members of the school board talked about the African-American families um, that they're leaving the school district, but they, they are still present in our shelters. Jenny mentioned that 
they're 50 percent of the families in the, in, in the shelters. And it's disheartening to me that um, they're 50 percent of the uh, population in the, in, in the shelter, but not 50 percent of the folks being housed. So we really have to work on that. You know, if, if it's the last thing I do before I leave the city and county of San Francisco, I do definitely want to see that number rise. So I'm here for questions, if you have any questions for me. Thank you, Ms. Crum. Sure. Um, I, I do have questions, but I'm going to let um, uh, Director Dufty go okay. first before we do questions. Sure. Thank you, committee members. I'm Bevan Dufty, Director of Hope. It's an honor to be at the City and School District Committee. It's a committee I loved and uh, helped to revive some years ago. Working for the mayor, I want to say that I'm very proud to work for a mayor that, as a child, lived in public housing. And I just want to take a moment because um, Jennifer Friedenbach brought this up, and I really appreciate the advocacy of the Coalition on Homelessness because they have been a consistent voice that families should not be invisible in this process. And as a parent of a public school child, I can tell you that when I'm out on the play yard, I look around and know that I'm looking at kids that are unstably housed or homeless and that I can't see it because you can't. They've got the same backpacks and jackets on, and they're coming to school to the best of their ability. They may be later than some other kids, but it really affects me to know that this problem in the hue and cry that exists in San Francisco about street homelessness really overwhelms the discussion of what we can do around families. And so the mayor and the board of supervisors have done a tremendous amount in the past two years to reimagine what public housing can be like. And we've always felt that public housing should be one of the most important tools that we have to respond to family homelessness. And so I want to acknowledge that the Homeless Coalition, both in developing the five-year roadmap and in their work with the Housing Authority, have always empowered parents. You don't go and meet at the Homeless Coalition and not be face-to-face -face with mothers more often and mothers and fathers that are affected, that have, that have become homeless and that are stuck in the system and having difficulty getting housed. Uh, we work together, the HOPE Office and the Coalition, in getting a, fam a preference for homeless families in our public housing. And that was a long, painstaking process. And then the Board of Supervisors, with the leadership of President Breed, $2.2 million, um, 140-some-odd units that had been long vacant, getting those units repaired. And I want to acknowledge Barbara Smith, the interim director of the Housing Authority, for meeting uh, every other month at the Coalition's offices and talking to people. And, and this led to the fact that we opened up the homeless family waiting list uh, this year in January, specifically for families that m met the homeless family preference. And we saw families starting to move even from this list. But uh, I, I do understand and respect that the RAD process and the transfer of management to nonprofits long term is going to be a very important improvement and that they need to control the vacancies that do arise to move people so that they can do substantial renovations on buildings. But uh, I do want to acknowledge both the mayor's leadership in making investments and prioritizing a change in our public housing system and the coalition's advocacy, and it is one of the six major recommendations that uh, they made. Uh, I want to reflect that, as uh, Joyce Crum indicated, that uh, the, the mayor 
uh, has made investments along the lines of what was recommended in the five-year roadmap. And the mayor met with the Coalition on Homelessness just before uh, issuing his budget and responded to the two mothers who were there. And, and I wish those mothers were here testifying right now because they were two women with kids who have worked through the system, secured permanent housing, and become sustaining and successful staying here in San Francisco. They are exactly what we want to see happen. And the mayor really responded to them and saw that success that they had achieved working through um, our programs and services. And we just want to see a lot more of it. And the mayor is very committed to an ambitious goal, responding to family homelessness, not treating it as business as usual. And I know that he is working hard and looking to create the types of partnership that we will need to make this a sustaining effort. I just want to reflect that um, funding has been provided through HSA to the Mayor's Office of Housing for 69 additional LOSP units. Uh, certainly this does address the coalition's second point about um, placing homeless households in turnover and nonprofit housing. I know Supervisor Kim, her advocacy around the Giants development is that the term affordable housing is so broad that we're really looking at families that need to be within the 20 zero to 20 percent AMI range, zero to 30 percent, you know, things 80, 90 percent is really out of reach for so many of our families, and it really isn't going to be meaningful to see units that are not um, addressing them. I do want to just briefly touch on uh, what um, Ms. Crum mentioned about CalWORKs and say that there was an increase recommended in this year's budget, and we worked with Senator Leno on the Budget Committee, and unfortunately for us, Governor Brown was very stingy with some of the increases that were made, and as a result, we were not eligible to get any additional money. So the money that we got, these CalWORKs incentives, they were extremely successful, and Hamilton had a great track record with it. And I think it's important to note that in the rapid rehousing that Hamilton has done, 92% of those families remain housed. And across the border, you'll see uh, representatives here from Homeless Prenatal, from Compass, Catholic Charities. I mean, when you make an investment in ending family homelessness for a family, they are overwhelmingly likely uh, to stay out of um, homelessness going forward. And, and the last point on the need for um, deeper subsidies, I work with families all the time. Sometimes families have huge barriers of not being documented, not being able to generate income uh, for their families. And deeper subsidies that are not time limited are extremely important for families that are not going to go outside of San Francisco. They do not feel safe. They do not feel that they're, you know, welcome necessarily, and they're not going to have the services to, to protect and, and advance their families. And so, I, you know, we are very supportive, and the coalition advocated, and, and the mayor responded with the, uh, the deeper subsidies. So I'm really grateful that you're having this hearing because it's important to keep this issue on the front burner, and I, I certainly want to attest to the mayor's deep commitment and the hope that we'll see some major things happening going forward. Thank you, Director Dufty. Um, are there questions from committee members from these presentations? Um, I, at this time, I do want to open up for public comment if there are members of the public that want to speak on item number one. Please line up if you are interested in speaking. Go ahead. Good afternoon. I'm Erica Kish. I'm the Executive Director of Compass Family Services, and um, I appreciate your attention to this super critical issue. Um, I want to just kind of agree with everything that um, has been said 
about the need to provide these services to kids in SFUSD in a preventive approach before they become homeless. Um, the piece that I can add is Compass, as Joyce said, uh, runs the front door. We've been running Compass Connecting Point for 20 years. So families that are facing a housing crisis come to us for services. Um, ironically, um, back when we first opened Connecting Point 20 years ago, we were able to keep our doors open five days a week, uh, you know, all day long. Over the years, as the problem of homelessness became more and more drastic and resources became scarcer, uh, cuts forced us to cut, to cut back and reduce what we were able to offer to, for families in absolute crisis. Uh, over the past six months, we've been able, through um, some creative machinations of our own, not including more dollars, to re uh, to expand again um, our capacity to serve families five days a week, all day long. And what we've seen is, even though the number of families that are waiting for shelter right now on the waiting list is not at the highest, uh, because we're more accessible, our doors are wider open. Families are like flooding our, um, our our center in need of shelter. So right now the waiting list, while it's only 140 families long, that is extra short uh, given what it has been in, at certain times. That's 140 families could mean 600 people. We're seeing a lot of multi-generational families right now. So um, you know that's not 140 people. That could be 600, 700 families. Families wait for six to eight months for a shelter stay. And that waiting time is definitely not a time that does the family any good in terms of their stability. So I just want to say how important it is that these preventive services are provided at the school district. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Good afternoon, supervisors, commissioners. I'm Dan Bowersox. I'm here representing the Homeless Prenatal Program. Um, we're one of the leading family resource centers in the city, uh, and we serve 4,000 families every year. Uh, and until recently, we proudly said that we help 400 families leave homelessness every year. Uh, the current fiscal year, we're tracking to be somewhere around half of that. Um, it really feels like the exits out of homelessness are drying up. Um, we've had surges with the, the CalWORKs program and with other subsidies uh, that, that seem to help temporarily, but um, to leave us without a long-term solution. Uh, and it's not for lack of trying. We had uh, 1,000 families in the last fiscal year um, come through our housing workshops where we um, talk about the search for affordable housing. Um, we help uh, give them hands-on assistance with filling out applications and getting on affordable housing wait lists. Um, we help them with computers uh, to get on the wait lists that way as well. Uh, all the efforts there, um, but it's uh, becoming more and more and more impossible and it really does feel like we're reaching a new point, a new level of crisis here. Um, we uh, aren't without our, our ideas and solutions. Um, we have a new program, as, as was previously mentioned, um, that we're starting up next month, where we'll be helping 25 families to stay in San Francisco with, uh, uh, with a long-term subsidy. Uh, so that's really exciting, um, and it's going to prevent some of the issues that we see with families leaving the city, uh, leaving their support structures, having transportation issues, uh, and, and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, this is, again, a, a drop in the bucket. It'll be a, a life-changing uh, assistance for 25 families, but it's not going to move the needle much. And 
you know, we look at the, the numbers um, that are in the thousands, and we talk about solutions that are in the tens or in the hundreds. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's going to take an aggressive and sustained investment to make this problem really disappear. And, and it's something, that's, something that, we can do, that we can accomplish as a city. So, so let's do it. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, I want to thank both uh, Homeless Prenatal and Compass Family Services for being here. We know that you provide um, essential services regarding homeless families. And I, um, I know, I believe Jeff Kaczynski announced the 40th anniversary gala for Hamilton Family Services tomorrow night um, at 6 p.m. Sorry, I'm going to, I thought I had the card in front of me. Oh, yeah, tomorrow night at 6 p.m. at um, Golden Gate Club at the Presidio. But I also know that Homeless Prenatal is doing their annual luncheon on October 9th, Friday, October 9th at 11 a.m. as well. And what is the location on that? At the Fairmont Hotel. And uh, for anyone that's listening in the public, if you want to be part of the solution, supporting these two organizations is an incredibly important piece of that and giving them more resources to support our homeless families. So thank you. Um, at this time, I'm going to close public comment on item number one. I want to give members of the committee, if they want to make any concluding comments. Um, but I, I just wanted to say, um, before we do that, uh, this is now our second hearing on this item. Um, it was an incredible gift, I know, from our private sector. Um, Google was one of the private um, contributors, but also the city, in really taking the first stab at beginning to address family homelessness in the city. Um, the numbers are stark. And when constituents email my office and they call us, I, I don't think they often realize the depth of homelessness that uh, impacts our families and our children. Um, because often what we see are the single adults on the street, and that is often what get, captures the attention of the city. But I think it is incredibly tragic that um, uh, we have 3,000-plus kids that are homeless in San Francisco, and it, that is definitely a state of emergency. Um, I'm glad to hear that other cities are starting to acknowledge it, but also acknowledging that family homelessness is a major piece of it. Um, and I hope that San Francisco um, will lead um, in making sure that we continue to uh, address this issue. Um, I think what is also very challenging to hear, of course, is that we are also on the market, like every other renter, um, um, in San Francisco. And so the city is also competing um, on a very expensive real estate market to house um, our families and stabilize them here in the city where um, it is their home and where their services are and where their schools are. And so it, it will require a tremendous amount of resources, but I just want to concur with Ms. Friedenbach and others that this is something that we absolutely can do. And the earlier we um, stop homelessness in the lives of our families, um, the more that we're going to be able to prevent um, many of the single adults that we're seeing on the streets today um, that people want us to solve. And it's not to say that one category of individuals deserve more support or more resources than other, but I think that this is certainly um, something that is very urgent. And I want to also thank the school district um, because we could not do this without you because that is um, where our kids are going to school. And often I think that is um, we need to go to where our families are and not have them find us. And so I, I think that partnership is incredibly important um, and want to make sure we continue this. Uh, Commissioner Haney, I know that you have been doing a lot of this um, at the school board's end. And so want to make sure that we continue this partnership and continue the hearings and figure out how, um, what more resources we can put in um, and what more direction we can have to keep uh, the impact going and keep the numbers um, going down on our wait list. Okay, I see no other names on the roster. 
Um, so at this time, um, Madam Clerk, um, can we please call item number two? And I do want to recognize that we've had a clerk ch uh, changeover. Um, Ms. Major is now our clerk for the rest of the committee hearing. And um, can you please call item number two? Yes, Madam Chair, would you like to make a motion on the item number one? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, can, I, can I take a motion to continue this to the uh, call of the chair? We have a motion and a second, and we can do that um, without any opposition. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Can we please call item number two? Item number two is a hearing regarding updates on the Teacher Housing Task Force and requesting the San Francisco Unified School District and Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development to report. Thank you. Um, so um, I know I see uh, Olson Lee on behalf of the Mayor's Office of Housing. I apologize, I don't, I'm looking for the order of speakers for this item. I, are we starting with um, Young Lee, Deputy Superintendent, and then Olson Lee, Director of Mayor's Office of Housing? I'm open to whoever wants to begin. They're going to co-present. Great. So Deputy Director Lees, if you would please come forward. Thank you. Um, I just want to acknowledge, you know, here at the committee, we, I, we are trying as best as possible to focus on issues that um, are impacting multiple agencies, both from the city and the school district, to um, address challenges in our city that uh, require the support and partnership of both SFUSD and the city. Um, and I think housing um, is certainly one of them, whether it is housing our families and our youth um, that are in, in stable housing or living on our streets and our shelters, or if it also means housing um, the very staff members on the front lines that are educating them um, or working in our schools, and that is our teachers, our nurses, our counselors, our paraprofessionals, um, our frontline staff. Um, it is essentially essential for the system to work that our employees can afford to live um, in the city or near the city um, in order to be able to continue to serve the many families and students um, in SFUSD. And so I appreciate that the school district and the mayors of Office of Housing, I mean, really, it's been an unprecedented partnership. I certainly did not see it during my time on the board, um, but have been meeting regularly. I know the planning department is now involved as well to figure out how we can plan for the population growth um, in relation to growing potentially um, SFUSD's enrollment um, and facilities. And I think that it, it is incredibly important for both uh, both partners um, to be at the table to figure out how we can address these issues together. Deputy Director Lee. It's a little confusing because we have two Lees in the... <laughs> yes, exactly. Two Lees are better than one. Um, so thank you very much, Madam Chair and uh, committee members. So my name is Myung Lee. I'm the Deputy Superintendent for policy and operations at the school district, SFUSD, and I'm uh, very glad to be here to talk about this very important and exciting work. And um, I'm going to speak just for a few minutes, but really the main, um, one of the main points is that this has been, as uh, Supervisor Kim has said, a unprecedented collaboration on an issue that um, Everyone in the city really is, uh, is, it's on the forefront of everyone's thinking, but uh, not least of all among uh, the city staff, the school district staff, and 
um, United Educators of San Francisco, our teachers union, and also representing paraprofessionals. So uh, basically just to give a little bit of background, and you have a, a PowerPoint presentation in front of you, I believe, uh, we have a, a crisis that's presenting itself, and it's been a longstanding issue, as you all know, uh, committee members, and this is, there have been discussions about workforce housing, educator housing in particular, happening for years. Um, and in the meantime, the conditions and challenges are uh, becoming more and more acute. So right now, just to share a few statistics, um, so these are, these are some of the, the frightening statistics that we're uh, we're very aware of and we're trying to, to beat the clock in some respects with this work. So right now there are, uh, this is according to a report that came out I believe about a year or so ago from Redfin, uh, there are no market rate homes for sale in San Francisco that are affordable uh, on the average teacher salary. So that's, that's not percentages, I mean that is percentages but it's also zero in absolute numbers. Um, second. We're lucky in, in the respect that almost three-fourths of our current teachers, this is based on information that's a few months old but, but fairly recent, about 72% of our teachers live in San Francisco. Um, and that's, that's good. We want to keep it as close to that as possible. But uh, we see more and more evidence that housing costs, anecdotal evidence as, as um, we hear every day, that housing costs are presenting as a significant issue for retention as well as recruitment. Uh, and then on a note about retention, about half of our teachers leave the position after five years. And uh, that's not a brand new statistic, but we, we do see more signs and hear more accounts of housing uh, affordability being more and more of a factor in our retention um, challenges. So in terms of what the composition of this working group. We, we have had about uh, probably a year or so of, of discussions with um, sort of a, a recess for a few months between the city and county and United Educators of San Francisco and uh, SFUSD staff. And we've reported a bit to our Board of Education along the way as well. So we have a, a three, um, uh, member or three-party working group with respect to San Francisco institutions, that's the city and county, uh, the school district, and UESF, and we've also had the technical assistance from uh, the American Federation of Teachers and the AFL-CIO Housing Investment Trust. So those are the, the entities that have been part of this conversation, and we're making a lot of progress. We still have a lot of work to do, but uh, we are meeting very actively and we're making um, progress in uh, very sp three specific respects. And we're calling it a multi-pronged strategy, uh, including uh, the possibility of a brick and mortar development, the concept of providing rental assistance to our educators, and home ownership assistance. So those are the three concepts that we've been uh, fleshing out some ideas around. And those ideas are all oriented towards these interrelated goals. So at the center is providing more affordable housing opportunities. And uh, we want to attract new teachers from a retention standpoint. Um, we want to keep the teachers that we have in, 
in San Francisco, and we also very specifically want to include our paraprofessionals in the strategies that we're developing. So with that, we know that your time, you've been meeting for a while, and we, we don't want to um, make them, this presentation longer than it needs to be. So at this point, I'd like to ask uh, the director of the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, Olson Lee, to uh, really deliver the bulk of the presentation, and, and I might come up here and there. And I also wanted to say that um, I believe uh, Susan Solomon, the executive vice president, She's on her way. Okay, the executive vice president of UESF uh, also agreed to be here, and hopefully she'll be able to join and, and make some comments on behalf of the union as well. And we've, we've been lucky enough in this working group to have very uh, deep representation from UESF, um, including the former president of UESF, Dennis Kelly, the current president, Lita Blanc, Ms. Solomon, uh, Carolyn Samoa, who leads, uh, who represents paraprofessionals, uh, Ken Trey, the political director, as well as Matthew Hardy, uh, the communications director. So we've had robust uh, representation from UASF, and that's made a big difference in our work as well. So, um, Director Lee. Thank you. Um, in the spirit of time, I'll click through um, some of the, um, the general slides. Um, and uh, this is a slide that um, I, I don't think we need to dwell on, but it really just talks about, you know, the, the, the affordability crisis in the city overall and what it really takes in terms of uh, um, being able to afford the, the average rent. And, and this will be important because as we go into talking about you know, sort of the, you know, the, the goal of providing housing for teachers and classifieds. Um, clearly, um, they're not being paid at that level to afford the uh, average rent. Um, this is just a little bit about um, our, um, our the, the AMIs on which we're basing a lot of our uh, affordable housing decisions. Um, so um, generally for a four-person household, it's $100,000. But as you saw in the earlier slide, one needed $171,000 uh, to afford the average rent. Um, this, um, this is a little hard to read, but this will give you a context of where, um, where um, groups of employees might fall. And we have in this uh, a post-secondary education um, uh, a teacher. Uh, we have some um, in here. Um, you know, sort of the other sort of workforce. And this gives us a sense, uh, as opposed to the numbers, the AMI, AMI numbers, who we're trying to target um, through the various programs. And this is a further um, sort of uh, clarification about what some of this, the, the, the incomes are of teachers. And one of the one, uh, teachers and classifieds and paraprofessionals. And one of the goals of the, the, the work that we are doing um, with the school district is trying to figure out what are their needs in terms of who, they, who the school district needs to serve and what are our tools that we have currently and how do we blend those two together to meet the mutual goals of creating affordable housing but focusing, focusing that affordable housing on teachers and classifieds. Um, it, it, 
this is uh, just a quick summary of, of what the affordability levels are in, in terms of our current programs. Um, our typical or, or, or traditional MO affordable um, uh, rental housing serves up to 60% of median income. That is a, a number that probably covers um, some classifieds and some very um, um, uh, uh, inexperienced teachers. Um, as you move further up in, in this um, continuum, um, there's a greater chances of, uh, of reaching, um, um, you know, uh, teachers. Um, and the, at the top of the, um, uh, or at the bottom of this chart, um, we have a teacher uh, next door down payment assistance program, um, which was funded um, um, a few, uh, quite a few years ago and hopefully will be refunded through the uh, affordable housing bond. So this is part of our exercise of trying to see, you know, what, you know, what, are, what our current programs apply in terms of the affordability level and where, where the affordability levels are, or where the uh, salaries of the teachers and classified sort of mesh. And one of the difficult things is really the question of, you know, not all teachers are single teachers. You know, teachers sometimes are married to other teachers. Sometimes they're married to other people, um, non-teachers, and trying to get a sense of, you know, will the combined household fit within the um, sort of the income le levels. And this gives you a sense of where um, they may be assisted, um, where there are, are holes in the um, in, in the programs, um, in, in part for some of the uh, classifications, um, the, uh, uh, the rents are, um, the incomes are so low that uh, they can't even afford some of the, um, the, um, uh, um, the uh, prices for, say, the BMR inclusionary program. So this is the, sort of the source of our funding uh, for, for our programs. Um, it's important to, to note because uh, some of these um, uh, sources of fund have either income restrictions on them um, or they have, um, you know, um, uh, well, primarily income restrictions um, in terms of what we can use our funds for. The bulk of our funds here um, are all limited to 120% of median income. Um, you know, which is, you know, I think the highest is the housing trust fund with the exception of the teacher next door program, which is at 200%, and the, and the first responders program, which was um, also created in, in Prop C. But generally, um, all of our programs on, um, are limited, um, generally limited to 120% of median income, um, and that we have always targeted for ownership. And most of these um, uh, sources have been utilized for rentals at up to 60% of median income. Again, um, you know, uh, this talks a little bit about our um, BMR inclusionary program. <clears throat> we have uh, approximately 4,000 units in our portfolio. Obviously, it's not enough. Um, and one of the things um, that people always, um, you know, uh, complain or, or complain about is that. Um, you know, when we have units available, um, there's an incredible demand for the housing. And, you know, um, the teachers, like everybody else, are in that big pool of people who are applying for units. So I think the last um, affordable housing unit we put up, um, we had 65 units, and there were 5,000 applications for that 65 units. Um, so we clearly need, um, as some of the previous speakers need, uh, have said, we do need to build more. 
Um, in terms of our housing preservation programs, um, um, we uh, have a small sites program which attempts to um, uh, uh, preserve uh, rent-controlled buildings, so small apartment buildings that we are not syndicating, you know, we're not using uh, low-income housing tax credits. We're sort of buying them as is with the people in as is. It's actually uh, gives us the ability to have some, you know, income skewing. It's not limited by um, by um, um, some of the, the income caps so that we can have sort of a um, the ability of the higher income or higher rent um, um, households and units in the building subsidizing the extremely low uh, rents in the in the building. The, the, we have a, two down payment assistance programs. One um, for for market rate housing, so um, somebody um, would go out into the general market and utilize the down payment assistance program. Um, perhaps if it's a teacher, use the teacher next door program um, to supplement the the $200,000 and acquire a unit. Um, there's also the ability to do uh, purchase a BMR unit, and we also provide uh, much smaller down payment assistance um, in those um, in for those um, um, BMR slash inclusionary units um, um, provided by the market rate developers. And these are all loans that are not paid um, on an annual basis. They're only paid at the time of refinancing or sale of the property. So, so a teacher or a, a borrower of ours doesn't have to worry about making making an extra payment to the city. It just stays there. And, and, and again, um, if you sell it at the end of the, of the term, it's a share of the appreciation. Um, it's never more than 50% of the appreciation. Um, and so, um, um, you know, uh, it, it's really a useful tool to increase the level of affordability. Um, Somebody said, well, aren't you just giving loans to people who don't qualify for loans? And our response is absolutely not, because these are loans that are behind a first mortgage. And so the, uh, the lenders underwrite these loans um, and uh, to make sure that the, um, the, the borrower can actually pay off a, a first mortgage. Often, these borrowers for these uh, um, first-time home buyers, they also put in additional money in addition to um, our, our down payment assistance. So they're very, very, very secure loans. And in terms of our down payment assistance loans for the sort of the open market, um, um, for the private uh, market homes, we've had zero losses in, in that program. So it's a pretty safe program overall. And, and it's a real great investment in San Franciscans, in middle-income middle San Franciscans. Mr. Lee, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but how many um, teachers actually participate in this down payment assistance program every year? And is there a max number? Uh, we have 55 um, uh, household um, teachers in, um, that have been assisted by the Teacher Next Door program. Um, we are proposing, I think the original allocation of funds for the Teacher Next Door program was $2 million. I think we're proposing to um, fund it at the $5 million level um, with, the, um, with the proceeds of the uh, housing bond. Um, so, the goal clearly would be to try to increase right. the, the participation of, of teachers overall in, in the program. So at $2 million, roughly 55 teacher households have been served by yeah. that. And the I assume this is just a one-time? Is it an yeah. annual co contribution? Or do we wait for families to, households to refinance or sell before we can bring that money back out? Huh. 
So there are two, there are two things. The, the Teacher Next Door program is one of the, the unique programs that are, it's actually a grant. And it's a recoverable grant so that over time um, we, we get less and less back. Um, right. So at the end of 10 years, um, if you're still a teacher at the end of 10 years, it, um, is that right, 10 years? So um, it's, it's like a forgivable loan. It's a forgivable loan. And then the, then the down payment assistance loan program goes on top of that. That's the, the number $200,000 that you saw. So you do the combination of both. So you get a $20,000 grant, help you with closing costs and, um, you know, uh, at your closing costs. And then you do the two, up to $200,000 for down payment assistance um, for, you know, uh, to help you, um, uh, you know, cover the, uh, the acquisition costs of, of the, of the, um, of the, of the unit. And, and we're, you know, we're, you know, uh, the prices have gone up we're, and we're looking at, um, the ability to um, to try to increase the the size of the funding so that the down payment assistance is more effective in making um, you know um, uh, income eligible people homeowners. Um, so, so just to clarify yeah. my question with the original two million dollar mm -hmm. uh, component, is that an annual contribution that the city it was makes? A one, it was a one time a contribution, one -time. and so um, it's from been the drawn fund. down yeah. by the fifty five households. Yeah. So yeah. the next five million. With the passage of Prop A, which I know everyone in this room will support um, this November, that would be that's another. 200, that's 250, um, 250 potential uh, households, households being assisted in by a one-time kind of contribution to this fund program. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think the other part of it is, you know, the goal would be to see if we can, you know, uh, tweak the, you know, the down payment assistance amount, and so therefore the combination of the two, refunding the teacher next door program plus, you know, perhaps increasing the down payment assistance loan funds. Um, and, and the, one of the things that um, we, we struggled with was the income cap at the 120 percent. I know we've, this, this body At 120 percent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This body has discussed the whole question of what's the appropriate level for middle income. And right. what we found was that, you know, two teachers, two kids would put you right over the 120. You know, so, so I really struggled with that number, especially yeah. when we were negotiating with the Giants to make yeah. sure that, you know, we were accommodating more middle-income units, particularly yeah. for, you know, our frontline workers in our right. schools. How many households do we know actually have a two-teacher household? I mean, that was one of the questions that I had. You know, yeah. how do we really get a real average of a teacher household yeah. in San Francisco. Well, it, it, it's a little hard because, you know, and I won't speak for um, uh, Superintendent Myung uh, Lee, but it, w the, the school district has information about their employees, and the, the, we, okay. we've asked for surveys in the past from, from some of the, the, the yeah, unions I about, see. you know, what, what the households might be. Right. And that would give us a better sense of what, what you know, where, where are they between in that continuum from zero to 150. Right. Um, and whether, you know, if we went up to 150 percent of median income, would that be effective to help um, a, a, a teacher, a typical teacher household or a right. household with at least one teacher um, or one classified um, be, become a home, home buyer in, in the city overall. Right. And, and I, I, I'm very open to that conversation about the AMI. I just yeah. want to make sure it's based on the data and that we're yes. not kind of throwing darts at the board okay. and, you know, hoping that that's the right number. I, I have another question, but before that I want to go to Commissioner Fewer and... Okay. So Commissioner Fewer. Um, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, some of the questions that I have, and sorry to interrupt your presentation. 
um, Olson is. So I'm just wondering, um, how many teachers do we currently hire? And this is for Deputy Superintendent oh. Myung. And how many do we need, need to hire new, how many new teachers do we need to hire every year? And how many teachers spend 30% um, of their income on housing? And how many spend up to 50% perhaps of their income on housing? Um, and I think this, this kind of surveying of how many of our teachers, our educators, and our paraprofessionals actually live in shared accommodations, meaning either an apartment or even do they share a room even? So we want to know the severity sort of and how many. And then also um, I wanted to know, you know, what is the annual, I mean, the sort of um, annual, I guess, household income for some of our teachers. So I'm wondering if we could survey some of our teachers to find that out. But district-wide, it's like, how many teachers do we hire every year? And what has been the trend for the last five years? Has the trend been that it is more difficult in the last few years to hire teachers? Do we hire the same amount of teachers? Are we losing more teachers because of that um, housing crisis? So. Um, I think that would help to frame the situation, actually, Myung, and give us sort of a background on it so that we can actually understand the purpose of why we are bringing forward, I mean, not only because we think that we really want to help our employees, but also why it's such a crisis mode now. So we know that we have always had to hire a number, a certain amount of teachers every year, but is the housing, housing crisis really having such a severe impact, and what is that impact, and to describe that to us in terms of need, paraprofessionals and our certificated staff. So I would love to have a survey from, and I've asked the leadership of UE and past leadership administrations to actually survey their members to find out currently what, um, what would work best for our educators and paraprofessionals? So would it be a down payment assistance? Is it rental subsidies or a housing allowance? Also, how many, how many teachers are you hearing spend more than 50% of their income on housing? And is the housing substandard housing? You know, I think that I have heard horrendous stories also about some young educators um, you know, sharing a room with four other people, um, not an apartment, but a bedroom. And so I think it would be interesting to get some of that data just to demonstrate what the crisis is and how it really has adversely affected the everyday functions of the San Francisco Unified School District. Thank you. Uh, yes, Commissioner. So uh, I, I can address some of those questions. And uh, with respect to the survey information that we information that we would gather through surveys we have been talking about that in our working group and and maybe I'll make a comment or two and, and uh, President Blanc and Executive Vice President Susan Solomon are are here as well so they might uh, want to add to, to what I say but with uh, respect to the questions about the recruitment and the and the statistics about how many teachers we've needed to hire. So overall, things have become, uh, the numbers are increasing in terms of the, the numbers of t uh, certificated teachers that we have to hire in the, in the past two cycles, I would say. 
Opening this current school year, we had uh, to hire more than 400 certificated positions, and that was true. That was roughly equivalent to the number last year, and, and both those years are a bit higher than, than they have been prior to that. So there are a few factors happening. One is that there is a teacher shortage, so uh, we, we know that uh, whether it's because of the effects of the recession and, and chronic layoffs happening nationwide and in California, uh, there were fewer candidates going to through teacher training programs, so there are fewer candidates that are emerging from, from those programs, and so the pipeline is, is smaller than it used to be. That's one factor. Another factor is that because there are um, more resources than there were in the aftermath of the recession, there are more positions. There's, there's a greater headcount of positions that are funded. And so that creates more demand for teacher candidates. So that's the second factor. And then third uh, is the information that, that we're anecdotally aware of and have less formal quantitative data about, but uh, with respect to our local housing market and our local Economy, so so we think that is a factor, but we we need to gather more um, quantitative evidence of that. On on the surveys, so we have been talking about in our working group the need to refresh our understanding because so much has changed and is changing quickly uh, to really get at the heart of some of those questions. For example, how many of our educators and paraprofessionals uh, are in households where they're the only earner versus in um, multi income households, how many are renting, how many are uh, owning, what, what are their preferences or aspirations with respect to their current or future uh, housing situations. And through our sort of standing administrative systems in the district, we don't have very robust information about many of those questions. So we have employee data. We don't have um, very uh, strong household data. So that, that does point to the need to, to do more survey uh, work. And we did have a body of work uh, with very helpful questions that I think are still applicable that was done several years ago, a uh, very comprehensive uh, survey that was done. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the response rate was. Uh, I think there, there were some, um, there was some uh, aspects of how many respondents we got from those surveys that, that we'd like to improve on. Um, so we have started to talk about how and when and what, what the questions would be, what the items would be, and what would be the mm -hmm. approach to surveying those members uh, of UESF in particular. But um, maybe I'll invite, I'll just ask if, uh, if President Blanc or uh, Executive oh, Vice uh, President. Deputy Secretary, could I ask you one more question? Sure. So will we do exit interviews? Mm -hmm. do, do we do exit interviews? And if we do, do we ever ask about the housing situation and the cost of living here in San Francisco as a factor? So I think that if we're not doing it, I think we should, because it would give us an indication of maybe what we're doing wrong, but also how we can assist families or, t or teachers that we have hired to stay here, because, you know, tension is very important to us. And another thing is that I think that survey was done in either 2007 or 2009, and if we lose 50% of our teachers in the first five years, then actually those results may not be very valid to the state. Right. Yeah. Right. So we, we, we know that the, the, the results of those responses are probably not worth 
paying a lot of attention to at this point. What I think we think will be helpful is the construction of the questions, because a lot of, of good thinking and work went into identifying questions that, that were asked of, of our workforce at that time. And we think that a lot of those same questions are probably um, the most relevant or among the most relevant questions to ask now. But the responses, as you say, so much has changed, including the, the respondents themselves or who would be responding themselves. So, uh, and, so you know, and I, I would also add to your conversation that um, we have specialty teachers that we would like to be able to attract and hire to. For example, bilingual teachers, uh, math and science teachers, right? And I think that we have had a problem with the, that kind of recruitment for our language immersion programs, for example, our special education teachers. And so I think what also would be interesting is to see how we compare with a pay scale in neighboring counties that they may move to after, and the cost, it costs our district every time we lose a teacher. And how much is that cost and how much is that added cost annually? And um, so anyway, those are a couple of questions I think that you probably don't have the answer to now or we can gather some answers to it. But I think this exit interview question would be really, really helpful when we know we lose 50% of our teachers in the first five years, why? Like what is, we can say, well, maybe it's the housing, but maybe it isn't, maybe it's something else. And so, but it would be, I think, very strong evidence if we were to hear the responses that it was the housing, you know, versus, us, so if you don't mind. Yes, and, and as I understand it, and, and uh, I could stand to confirm and uh, you know make sure that I've got my facts straight about this, but I, I do not believe that we have a systematic, uh, reliable process in place now for conducting exit interviews of employees that are separating for whatever reason. Uh, we have had some research done in the not too distant past, uh, especially with the help of, of Stanford uh, related to our QTEA um, program, our Quality Teacher and Education Act. Uh, we did get some good data at that time about the reasons why uh, our teachers, for example, were cho choosing to stay or, or not. And um, I think similarly, those, those questions I think were were the right questions, and we got very interesting data at that time, but I do think it was probably three years ago or so, and we haven't built in, and, and I agree, it would be good if we got more systematic data as a matter of course uh, from our employees that are separating. Um, I'd have to talk with you know some of my colleagues about what it would take to build that capacity, I think, um, in terms of resources and, and uh, structures to make sure we're we're raising awareness about these interviews, trying to get robust participation. Sometimes employees, their circumstances are, are across the board, and sometimes it's, it's uh, easier than others to, uh, to really have that closeout conversation. So I think that's been one of the challenges, but, but we can certainly investigate that. Good afternoon. I'm Lita Blanc, president of UASF. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you to everybody here. Um, it's, it's an important, important moment that the city is taking to 
to really take a close look at this particular need for educator housing, teacher housing, um, and take a close look at what it is, what's the problem, and what's the solution. And I appreciate um, both the people from the, our colleagues from the district, our, our members, and um, Supervisor Kim, Mayor Lee. Um, it's a joint effort to find a solution to this crisis, because it is really a crisis. Um, I, I did want to go back to the fact that we're talking about educator housing. Um, as you know, uh, we do represent over 1,500 paraprofessionals, and they suffer doubly because they make, you know, 25, some of them make as low as $25,000 a year. So uh, we, in our vision, we are talking about um, housing that that runs the gamut from um, teacher uh, to, to, to teachers in a household to a para who's trying to um, live in the community where they're working. Um, we, um, Vice President, Executive Vice President Susan Solomon is going to talk a little bit more about our survey because so we just looked at it today. But the numbers that was done about eight years ago, but for sure we believe that we have more like 65% of our members living in here in the city, uh, a drop from the mid-70s when the survey was done. So that's a clear trend. Um, it it has reached um, sort of a point of desperation for uh, younger teachers who. They've come out of school wanting to live, wanting to dedicate themselves to um, urban education. They could, they could have gone anywhere, but they chose San Francisco. And I think they give it their best. Um, they're, they're good for about a year living with their three or four roommates, and then they think they can take their credential, whether it's in special ed or bilingual or uh, the rare IT teacher. That's very hard to keep an IT teacher here in San Francisco. And, and go down the peninsula, uh, where they'll make you know fifteen or seventeen thousand dollars more in their early years. And what about our? We hear a lot from our mid-career teachers who are starting a family. We've had people come to our union me meetings with their babies to say, "What's the union? What can the union do for us to help us uh, make a lifelong career here in San Francisco?" So I think, uh, and I do want to say, um, I'm very, very appreciative of the efforts that we have made so far. Um, I think the housing bond is going to go. It's a good first step um, in, in all aspects, the down, the, assist, the down payment assistance, the teacher next door, whatever goes into affordable housing. It's just that it's a, a modest step, and the need is so great that I, for the city as a whole, for, the, for educators, and, and for the, our families, we just want to see uh, a massive amount of support going into the affordable housing um, project. And um, we're glad to be a part of it, and we'll support each and every effort that leads in that direction. So I'm going to leave it at that for now, and thank you again very much for our, this opportunity to share um, our ideas. Thank you, Ms. Blanc, and I just want to congratulate you um, on your, your new position as president of UESF, so welcome. And Susan Solomon, thank you for being here. You've served many, many years in the leadership of UESF, and we appreciate um, your history. Thank you very much, Commissioner Kim. So I won't... Uh, repeat too much of what President Blanc said, although I do want to say that it is, echo that it is a crisis. We do see a lower percentage of our educators living in San Francisco from even the 2007 survey that we did. Uh, one more thing about who else this covers, paraprofessionals certainly, also nurses, librarians, psychologists, social workers, counselors, all the educators in the school, all of, in our schools, all of whom we need to have close by. So when we reviewed the survey from seven years ago, 
rather eight years ago, from 2007, we reviewed which questions would still be relevant and which not, and most of them still are. Um, Commissioner Fewer asked, what kind of assistance do we need? All kinds. We need loans. We need subsidies. We're talking in, uh, in the task force that is the uh, is UESF, SFUSD, the Mayor's Office of Housing Development, AFL-CIO, and AFT. We're covering all possibilities, uh, including rental subsidies, loans, uh, bricks and mortar. Everything is up for discussion because the need is so great. And one thing we were talking about just today when we were crafting the survey that we want to do is one of the questions was whether it was a goal for the people taking the survey to own a home, to buy a home in San Francisco. And one of the things that occurred to us is maybe some people aren't even thinking of that as a possibility anymore. So we want to try to find out if you're not thinking of buying a home, is it because you've just given up on the idea that it's so far beyond the realm of reality for you? Uh, the other, another issue that we'd want to address is we're talking a lot about attracting and retaining new teachers to the school district. You will um, hear shortly from some of our members who have been here for a long time and dedicated many years of service who are facing eviction now because they've had because the uh, housing in San Francisco has become less secure. So what do we do for people who have already dedicated essentially a career, nearly a full career in San Francisco and are facing the possibility of having to leave? That's another issue that we see. And so in our work on the housing task force, I believe that the goals for all of us are, are common goals and that is attracting and retaining qualified educators in San Francisco, making sure that people have a place to live where they don't have to spend so much time commuting that they're giving up the time that they would ordinarily spend at school with their students. And uh, it also means how much time can you sit and prepare if you're on a train or a bus or driving two or more hours each day and we are hearing more and more about how that's a concern. One more concern is for, for educators who live outside of San Francisco who do have families, it means that their children are going to school in a different city from where they're spending their day. And this is a worry for some people. I remember going back years to the 1989 earthquake of people being stranded from their children across the Bay Bridge. So that is another concern, and we want to find out how that's affecting our members. So we are going to continue to work. The next step definitely is getting our survey out. The, uh, the amount of response we got back in 2007 is lower than what we want it to be now. We think there's even more interest now. One thing we're contemplating this time is to actually put in the resources to do a telephone interview so we can have one-on-one -on -one conversations with thousands of people. And uh, The last one was an online survey, and even though more people have access to computers now than even uh, eight years ago, we want to make that extra effort to get the data that will, the more accurate the data, the clearer the results and our goals will be. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Solomon. Um, Commissioner Wins and then Supervisor Campos. 
Okay. I, there was only, I don't think there was much left in the presentation. Is that okay if we move on to, okay, great. Commissioner Wins and then Supervisor Pompos. I actually, in my remarks, will want to respond to the next page. I think it was the next page. <laughs> but, um, but I want to just say a couple of things. Well, uh, many of you know I've been interested in this subject for, you know, close to 20 years, but certainly the last 12 or more years that we've been talking about it. And there are, so I want to say that, first of all, the situation has become dire compared to what it was then when we started talking about this, and it was serious then. Uh, but also um, the crisis mode seems to have finally gotten us thinking in a different direction. So I'm happy about that. We actually, um, but I still, I think we're still kind of stuck. Um, one of the, you see the data here that tells you that basically teachers in particular make too much money to be eligible for most of the housing subsidies that are eligible, that others, other working class people are eligible for. Um, and I appreciate that particularly that the city has, the, the original Teacher Next Door program funded by HUD and with severe limitations, it was basically assistance to buy HUD controlled housing houses in the jurisdiction in which you teach because its purpose was to get people living where they taught an opposite problem that we have where essentially all our teachers would like to live in San Francisco where they teach and there was not a single HUD controlled house and that was almost 20 years ago available so it was an irrelevancy for us and we actually talked to HUD a lot about having a a waiver for us or addressing the reality here which they were unwilling to do. So clearly we have to, we can't continue only to say these are the restrictions we have and we just can't do anything about it. Um, so I'm, I think that it sounds to me like this task force is finally beginning to do some of that and I'm pleased about that and want to urge that we do more get more people who can help us to change our thinking and do things in a different way because it's, I think given the housing costs here and the reality of th that even though we want to and intend to in the coming years with increased funding to increase teacher salaries as much as we possibly can, we just won't ever be able to catch up with the housing costs, particularly for home ownership. So uh, we, we need different ideas and different ways of doing this. One of the things that, and you can see in the chart that tells you how affordable housing is financed, um, and the more you study this, the more you learn about this and get frustrated, uh, there are components to that housing, to that financing that I just don't know how we can get over the fact that teachers make too much money to be eligible for federally subsidized housing, basically. So I'm hoping that we are in the task force exploring ideas about how we could do some kind of subsidized housing that would be not use federal subsidies, basically, that would use other kinds of subsidies, private funding. Certainly that what the city is doing is a major departure from that, whereas in the past the city was not putting hundreds of millions of dollars of city-controlled money into affordable housing. That is a new ball game, very, very important for us. And I think, I'm hoping that we're actually looking at, and in the chart it 
the federal subsidies are not the major <laughs> subsidies. So I'm hoping that we actually are able to move in that direction and that that's one of the things that's being talked about. And I'd like at some time, either here or you know, in a meeting or in some way have the board be able to explore that and learn more about that. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, it, and in addition, I'm supervised, my supervisor, <laughs> Supervisor Campos may be unhappy to hear me say this, and I'm only saying it just as a talking point for us to put out on the table that um, there is, there has been some talk from private developers when they're developing, doing their developments, their housing developments, and they have an obligation to build, to contribute to or build affordable housing, um, that they would do it without Sub, that they would pay for all of it themselves. And also that addresses the issue of on-site versus paying into a, the city's the funds that we have. Uh, and so I think that it would be helpful if both the mayor's office and the school district and the task force would help us to advance that discussion in some way. One of the things important to know is that the uh, since, and even though we are entirely dedicated to not discriminating, it's important to understand that the prohibitions against discrimination also mean that we can't discriminate in favor of teachers. And so that is a whole other issue about the funding also. That we, so, and the thing I was going to say about the next page, which I, I've, we've had this debate and discussion at the school board, so Mr. Olson, Mr. Lee knows I'm going to say this, that the, you know, I, it's interesting that we list as a success 1950 mission because there isn't any provision that any of that housing developed on land that belonged to the school district. In fact, it should be said here, the major asset that the school district can bring, which is a huge asset in San Francisco, to any housing development is property. And yet, even though since we couldn't do it any other way, what we've done is sell, trade for our parking lot, actually a, a very valuable piece of property where we're happy affordable housing will be built, and this, built, and this kind of goes back to the previous presentation about family, about housing families and homeless families, and most of it will be family housing, not just housing for single adults. That's a big, that's a big deal for us because, as you heard, most of these families that get subsidized housing, or many of them, have students in the school district. So, you know, there are issues on both sides of this, but this, in this, what we did here, in my view, we have no evidence. We have only evidence to the contrary to the position that this is a success related to educator housing because the likelihood in the sort of 5,000 applicants for 65 units that any teacher or school employee will live there is extremely small. And so um, I think that just to, I, I want us to push the envelope even farther and to break the stranglehold that, that the conventional structure that's been developed extremely successfully, which we all like to develop affordable housing in the nation has to be changed or we will never get to address the issue of actually having teachers and other school employees live in San Francisco, let alone own 
homes here, but even to be able to live here. And I, I don't think it's out of line to say, and is a huge concern to all of us, but certainly to the members of the Board of Education, that we can't have a successful public school district in the city of San Francisco if teachers and other school employees can't live here. So this is a, you know, I don't think it's too extreme to say that this issue represents a, a very important component of our existential future. Is there going to be a, a functioning, successful public school system in San Francisco or not? And if teachers can't afford to live here, let alone our other employees who make even, even far less money even than underpaid teachers, the answer would be no. And that's how important this is. And so I'm just going to say, good, we've done what good here. This, these steps described today are important from where we were years ago but not good enough. And, it, and also, let's, and, and it needs to be even more different than what we've done up to now. So, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Wynn. Supervisor Campos, and then Commissioner Haney. Thank you. Before I make my comments, I wanted to ask a question of Mr. Lee, uh, Olson Lee. If, uh, if you could uh, go back to the, and I say this as someone who's been campaigning for Prop A pretty heavily and will continue to do so. Of Prop A, of the $310 million in Prop A, how much of that is targeted towards uh, uh, educators, teachers, paraprofessionals? Um, it's targeted for middle income, and clearly the teachers fall within that category of middle income that are, are you know, whether it's ownership housing for our down payment assistance program at one continuum, and we're looking at um, looking at the 120 and above because we think that there's a need in those areas to try to, uh, to try to address. Um, and it's also about addressing that gap between that 60 percent of median income and that 120 or 150 as it relates to rental housing. So, so that 310 is targeted to her for both those down payment assistance uh, for that higher income for that greater than 120, as well as any sort of rental assistance that doesn't qualify for tax credits. So anything from 60, 61% uh, of median income up to 120, 150, whatever we all decide is the appropriate level um, to, to fund, fund uh, uh, some workforce housing. So what's the amount in the 310 that uh, goes to there's that? Not, there's not a specific amount because I don't have a specific project yet. Okay. But, but, but that is exactly the population that is intended okay. to be served within the 310. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I want to thank uh, Chair uh, Kim and everyone who's who's here today. I think that this is actually one of the most uh, important things that we can be talking about. Uh, I think housing and the housing crisis is the most important issue facing San Francisco, and I actually think that nothing uh, uh, epitomizes uh, the housing crisis more than what's happening to educators in, in San Francisco. Uh, I want to thank everyone for their presentation, the Mayor's Office of Housing, of course, our Deputy Superintendent, Myung Lee. Uh, and I saw David Golden as well, the Head of Facilities, who left, uh, make sure that he left before I spoke. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it's great to see the Teachers Union and the newly elected President of the Teachers Union. Uh, 
and I will say about uh, Commissioner Wins, I think Commissioner Wins, you've been talking about teacher and educator housing for as long as I remember since I started working for the school district. So thank you for continuing to push this issue. Uh, but I am going to be the, uh, and by the way, I do have to apologize that I can't stay here for the entirety of the hearing, but I have another speaking engagement. But I, I do have to be the skunk at the picnic uh, today. Uh, I, I, I actually think that uh, what we have heard in terms of what the city is doing, what the school district is doing, uh, it's actually nothing to be proud of. And I don't mean that to say that I, I don't appreciate the work that has been done. Uh, I, I value the work and I value uh, what everyone is doing. Uh, but if I, if I were giving us collectively a grade, uh, since we're talking about education housing, uh, I think we'd get an F. I mean, the, the reality is that it, having worked at the school district, as including having worked as their lawyer for many years, I don't believe that school districts are in a position to actually be the ones to lead this kind of effort. I actually think it requires city government to step in and actually take charge of this issue. And unless that happens, I just don't think that we are going to see educator housing built in San Francisco ever. Because I've had conversation after conversation both on the inside on the outside of this issue for the last 15 years. And the only way that this is going to be built is the only way that it's been built in other jurisdictions is if the city, through the chief executive, actually makes it a priority. And when you look at the context of what we're talking about, I think the teacher's union has been very kind in talking about city government and its, and its approach to this. Because if I were them, I wouldn't be so kind. The, the fact that we're talking about First of all, a bond of $310 million tells you how we have a crisis and yet we're not really dealing with this like it's a crisis. You know, we have an emergency situation and we're dealing with it like we have a cold. To actually build the level of housing that is needed to keep a working class and a middle class in San Francisco, we have to build tens of thousands of units of affordable housing. And when you consider that it takes anywhere from, depending on who you ask, $250,000 to maybe as much as 500000 to build such a unit of housing, you're talking about billions of dollars in housing to be able to maintain the level of displacement and diversity that we have today. And I say this, and I said this to Nancy Pelosi, and I will say this again. If we had lost the number of people that we have lost that have been displaced to a natural disaster, and we're talking about 8,000 Latinos in the mission, we're talking about hundreds of people each year that have been displaced in the last few years. If we had lost those folks to a natural disaster, we, ha we would have called the federal government into San Francisco and said, help us. And yet, it hasn't been a natural disaster, but it's been a disaster Nonetheless, and it's been a disaster, by the way, of our own doing, because our housing policy has been driven by supply-side economics. We believe that 
the answer to building housing for the middle class and the working class is to build housing for the rich. And somehow the benefit of that housing will trickle down to the middle class and the working class because the rich are not going to go and bother to buy housing for the middle class. It hasn't worked in the mission where 97% of the units that are slated to be built are luxury units that not a single teacher can afford. It hasn't worked. And so we have no real vision, I think, to really address this crisis. I'll be honest with you. And I think that until we stop patting ourselves in the back and realizing the gravity of this situation, we're not going to get to the solution that is needed. We need to build hundreds, thousands of units for teachers in San Francisco. And we don't have a plan for doing that. I have yet to see a plan from the mayor's office on how to do that. I have yet to see a plan from the Board of Supervisors on how to do that. 1950 mission, to call it a success respectfully, I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, we are trying to make the most of the situation. We're using it for a navigation center. But I don't think it's a success that even though you guys at the Board of, Superv uh, Board of Education voted how long ago to, 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 to hand this over to the city? Well, how, how long do you think it took to do an RFP? They just, they just finally selected someone. Building hasn't even started. That's one project of the thousands of, of projects that are needed. So. I'll be honest with you, this, this is something that we need to have a different perspective. Uh, it, it, this is more than just a cold. This is, this is a real emergency. And until we start recognizing that it is an emergency and actually creating a vision that's specific, and I understand the limitations legally of what we can or cannot do in terms of targeting teachers, but I think it is possible for us to do this. Uh, and it really saddens me. It saddens me that uh, we are building housing for a city that is different than the city that I think any one of us wants to live in. We are not building housing for uh, teachers. And, you know, the thing is this, is if, if you want teachers to live, educators, paraprofessionals as well, to live in your city, you build housing for them. And to the extent that the housing we're building is not for them. It tells me that city government has not really prioritized them. So until that changes, I think we're going to continue to have the same. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Campos. Uh, I just want to note that we're going to lose quorum soon, so I want to make it through public comment. So Commissioner Haney, I was going to ask if you could speak after public comment. Thank you for your patience. Um, I do have a number of speaker cards, and I want to recognize that we have um, many members of UES staff and teachers here. Um, but I also know that we have um, former Board of Education President uh, Mark Sanchez. Um, so I'm going to call up the speaker cards. Uh, uh, Mark Sanchez, Graham Bell, Anna um, Slavic Keck, Susan Kitchell, Delini um, Longshashandra, Sandra Mack, and Matt Bellow. Um, please just line up in any order. Um, first speaker, please come up. And uh, that mic, it doesn't matter, but yeah. 
that microphone. Hi, I'm Graham Bell. You um, can pull the mic closer to you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Graham Bell. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Camille, this isn't going to work, and the Prop A is going to take place in 15 years. I'm going to be retired. In June, I became homeless. I am the face of homelessness now. Your ch child's teacher was living in a car, was living in hotels, going around here. At the beginning of the school year, when I talked to you as a board, I was homeless. That's because I finally did find a place outside of the city on a good day or a bad day. It takes me an hour and a half to get home. Do you think I'm going to continue that? Other places around here pay more money. I'm a critical needs teacher. I teach, as long as I'm deaf and hard of hearing, special ed, it's always been that way. Um, I can tell you from the, my colleagues who quit, 95% of us have quit in that job in the last four years. Every single one of them has told me that housing and the commute is not worth it. I can go down, I just found this out, I can go down the peninsula and I can make $40,000 or more a year. I put my application in. As soon as they accept me, I'm walking. You know, that, that's the reality. And, I, you know, and the long-term thing, I just want to kick uh, leaders who go up to Google and Apple and Facebook who pretend that they are incorporated in the Cayman Islands so that they don't pay their taxes. And we have our mayor and other people meeting with them and giving them like they are honors. They're tax cheats. If they were paying their money into the state, we could all have a raise. And education is not a charity. It is a responsibility. I am not a stakeholder. I am a citizen. And that is a noble thing. And that makes me able to talk to anybody, including the President of the United States, as an equal. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bell, for sharing your story. Good to see everybody. Um, supervisor Campos, when you speak like that, I'm proud that you're my supervisor. <laughs> um, I hope that we can get past stuck, as uh, Commissioner Wins mentioned. Um, this has been a crisis for a really long time, obviously. I was working on it when I was on the school board, and we got nowhere. We were stuck then. We're stuck now, and I'm a little embarrassed about that. Um, we have massive amounts of property in this district. We need to really move on it. We need to get past the rules that are breaking us down and not being able to house our educators. And that's it. We just have to do it. We have to find a way to use our own property with the city and make sure we can house our educators. I'm the principal at Cleveland Elementary School. Not one of my teachers, my teachers, our teachers, um, can afford a house in San Francisco. None of them can afford a house here, and some can maybe afford a house far away, and they drive maybe two hours each way um, or to and back from school. But it's not sustainable. I mean, when teachers are leaving our district and leaving my school because they can't um, live here, it's, it's a crisis situation. So I'm happy that we're having this discussion. I'm hoping that actually I, w I want to put an open call out. I think that UA, I know UA, I'm a, on the board of the officers of, of my union, can be at the table for this task force because when I talk to principals, they have the same point of view that they can't even live in the city themselves, but they know that their teachers need to be able to live here and afford um, housing. And so I'd hope that UA can be invited to the table for that task force. Thanks. Thank you, Commissioner Sanchez. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Anna Slavicek. I am a 20-year veteran of San Francisco School District, um, a member of the executive board of UASF 
and also the co-chair of San Francisco uh, Mission Bernal ACE chapter. Um, so I'm speaking to you as an activist, also as a teacher. I grew up in San Francisco, and I've been really my only job has been as an educator. I started as a paraprofessional, and I've been a teacher for the last 18 years. So I'm speaking to this body. Really, I recognize that you're a joint body, and I think both of you have responsibility for the situation that we're in. And I really agree and applaud Supervisor Campos for speaking up in that way. I was getting ready to say just the same thing, and it makes it much easier to do so. <laughs> um, so I think you know our solution for teachers overlaps with and has much to do with the same solution as, as, as what we need for the generalized community. Teachers are not separate from the community. We are part of it. Um, and that's one of the beauties of being a teacher. You are completely enmeshed. So we are linked to, we can never be divorced from. So the, so the solutions for, the, for, the, for our students and for our community are the same as they are for us. Um, so I think, you know, as a teacher, I have to be quite honest with you that we have been looking on in horror at how our city has been just completely decimated of the working class people by certain members of this body of City Hall. I hold you responsible, some, some, some of you, not all of you, but some of you, and in particular our, our, particular our mayor. I have to say that quite honestly. We've been completely horrified by that. Is that my time? Shoot. Okay. Please, stop the luxury developments, the, the building can never be the solution, it is the, it is the cause. Stop the building of the luxury developments. The Prop A with the 65, 650 units that will be built makes us compete with the rest of the, of the community for very few housing opportunities. This is not a solution. Um, I'm really concerned that Google is mentioned as part of the solution, as a partner in our solution. They are the source. Um, Honest, okay, I have much. No, you can to finish the sentence. Can I finish? Okay, so oh, the sentence, just I'm sorry. to understand, you know, I'm the last person on my block not to be evicted. I pay 45% of my of my um, income in rent. Um, this, these homeowner assistance plans that we're getting are never going to be effective for me. $200,000 is great, but $1 million homes are out of reach. Thank you, Ms. Lavvak. Good afternoon, supervisors and commissioners. Like Graham, I want to put a human face to what's going on. My name is Susan Kitchell. I've been a renter in District 1 since 1982. I've been a nurse for just shy of 40 years, and I've worked with the children, youth, and families of our city for the 34 years since I arrived here in 1981. I've been employed by the SFUSD as a school nurse since January of 1997. I've lived in my current apartment in District 1 since February of 2000. The building recently changed hands and the new landlords have now begun the process of ousting the building's tenants. I'm a single parent of a sophomore in college who was raised in the city from the time of his birth. I earn my salary in the city. I spend my salary in the city. I shop almost exclusively in the stores along Geary Boulevard and Clement Street. I know the neighborhood shopkeepers. I know where to buy the best bagels in the city. That happens to be in District 1. I see many of the students I work with on the streets, in the neighborhood, throughout the city as I travel throughout the city. My neighbors know me. I know my neighbors. While two of the three tenants in the building in, I live in are members of the so-called protected class, myself being one of them, many legal resources that we've reached out to have already told us protected in the current environment means next to nothing. For many years, I attempted to enter the home ownership market through the BMR program, the below market rate program, but I never secured a winning lottery ticket. 
With our last contract campaign, we received a modest salary in increase. That modest increase placed me outside the income range of the program. So what happens now? What happens when I'm ousted from my apartment? Where does someone like me go when they thought they had already arrived? In all likelihood, I won't be able to remain here. When I look at where I can afford an apartment outside of the city, the time and expense of commuting forces reconsideration of the feasibility of working in this city. Thank we have you, many Ms. vacancies Kitchell. in the school district and many educator categories. We need to accelerate the rate of educator housing assistance, and we need to do that today. Thank, Thank you, you, Ms. Kitchell. Thank you so much. My name is... Uh, hello? My name is Sandra Mack. I'm a retired teacher, taught for about 38 years in the school district, currently a member of United Educators Retired. And, um, and speaking of United Educators, uh, I, everybody in this room, I suppose, understands that when we say teachers, we use that as a generic term. We mean teachers, paraprofessionals, we mean nurses, we mean psychologists, we mean frontline people who have a frontline relationship with students. And that's why teacher affordability the affordability of teaching, uh, of, of, uh, income, of living in San Francisco for teachers is everybody's issue. If you remember one of the examples that was given in the last presentation about child homelessness, one of the speakers said, everybody is a source of information about referring people for help. You know, the cafeteria worker is a source. Everybody who works in the building can be a source, but the number one source of information for referring families to Hamilton and others was the parent liaison. And the parent liaison, ladies and gentlemen, is a paraprofessional. These people who work in the city, who work in the school district, who commute, some of them, an hour and a half to get to work, and have the option, if they are teachers, of working, of getting ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 more somewhere else, buying a house somewhere else, also have the luxury of knowing that wherever they go, they're needed. You may love teaching in San Francisco with San Francisco kids, but if you go to Red, if you go to Sequoia, you're going to be teaching kids who also need you. So you don't even have to have a guilt trip going against you. It is absolutely necessary that we prioritize teacher housing, and by that I mean paras and, and others. Para and keep in mind, it's not a matter of teachers against anybody else. I, unlike one of the previous speakers, Ms. Slavacek, I don't see that there is a contradiction between supporting teachers and supporting the community. If you are on an airplane, they tell you, as you are a parent, the first thing you do is put on your own oxygen mask, because if you don't have it, you can't help a kid. Thank you, Ms. Mack. Hi, my name is Delaney Lankachandra from Brightline Defense Project. We are a public policy advocacy nonprofit in San Francisco devoted to ensuring economic diversity in, in the city. I'll, I'll keep my comments very brief. We've heard a lot of, a lot of proposals talking about ways to ensure for affordable teacher housing from brick and mortar to rental assistance to, um, to down payment assistance. And, and we think that these are very important and concrete and realizable goals in the in the process of making making housing affordable to teachers in San Francisco and and we support all of these goals and would like to thank supervisor Kim for spearheading this this task force thanks thank you 
I should clarify, I'm not chairing the task, I didn't uh, spearhead the task force that was actually done with SFUSD and Mayor's Office of Housing. But I did call for this hearing so that we could learn uh, the results of that. But thank you for that credit. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matt Bello. I'm a teacher right here in the neighborhood at Civic Center Secondary. Um, I'm the union rep there and I, also, I often hear stories about what's going on with our teachers. I, we've had teachers sleeping in cars that have been homeless. Um, I think all of the other teachers here have already eloquently talked about the housing crisis and I want to talk about the affordability of San Francisco here for educators and I hope this isn't too much of a distraction but it's something that's constantly on my mind that haunts me is the uh, cost of health care for teachers in San Francisco and the buck really stops with, with the, the district here, in my opinion. Maybe you could find a creative way where the city could help fund this but I know multiple teachers, the basic HMO plan in the city costs a, a two-plus plan, anyone could go on the HSS website right now, costs teachers $700 a month. And now, God forbid you, your, your family member has a, has a particular medical, medical condition where you need a PPO where it's going to cost you $1,100 a month, right? I know paraprofessionals, it's half of their paycheck. I, I mean, when we want to talk about an affordable city, uh, housing, I'm really, really happy about the movement that we, that we see um, developing around housing, though I, I have to say I agree with uh, uh, Mr. David Campos quite a bit. But I really think that the district, if you're serious about making the city affordable, let's make health care affordable for our members as well. Because, I mean, right now I could say 6,000 members of UASF, right? If, if you subsidize $700 per person, and it wouldn't even be nearly that much, it would be $4 million for the district a year, right? And the relief that that would have on the, uh, the members that I know how much they suffer every month paying that ridiculous payment for health care and, and the ability to maybe keep fam families in the city, educators with families in the city, I mean, it, it, it would be an incredible benefit for, for educators. So I hope that's not too much of a distraction, but I really, really, it's really close to my heart. I'm sure everyone who has uh, family members with health, con health conditions understands where I'm coming from with that. So Thank you, Mr. Bella. That. Thank you. Good evening, Commissioners. My name is Gayla Peters, and I'm a school counselor at Balboa High School in the Excelsior District, and I'm also a proud and passionate San Francisco native. I attended Frank McCoppin Elementary and Roosevelt Middle Schools in the Richmond District. <coughs> Unfortunately, my family left San Francisco in the 1980s, but I returned in order to continue my public teaching career in the city I so deeply love. I have worked for SFUSD as a substitute teacher, a teacher on special assignment, a classroom teacher, and now as a school counselor. I'm incredibly proud of the school in which I work, and I'm elated to go to work each day, working for the bright and beautiful students and families of San Francisco. Unfortunately, I know that within the next two years, I will be forced to leave the Bay Area due to the outrageous housing costs and cost of living increases that we're now experiencing. I believe firmly that students deserve to see their teachers, their counselors, their paras, their administrators, their security guards, their cafeteria workers walking the streets on which they walk, living in the communities in which they live. This is becoming increasingly less possible. How shameful and un-San Franciscan it is that our cities and our mayor's utter lack of leadership has as its most direct victims the young people we say so vehemently that we want to educate with authenticity, opportunity, and equity. In July, we were sent by the district an email alerting us to the fact that over 90 teaching vacancies existed, asking us for our assistance in recruiting teachers to San Francisco. Can you imagine the numbers we will likely see in July of 2016 or 17 or 18? 
How will this impact our school sizes, our class sizes, and the subsequent stability of our schools? The creative spirit of San Francisco is not seen in its leadership. The city and the school district hold parcels of land that could be and should be converted into affordable educator housing. It's my hope that the progressive and creative spirit of San Francisco that makes me so proud to be a native will be revived in new and revolutionary and urgently needed ways of addressing this affordability crisis. To say that I will leave San Francisco, that I will be forced Thank to leave you. San Francisco, is the most heartbreaking thing I could imagine. I'm good at my job. I love it. And I... Thank you. Um, so at this time, seeing no further comment, we're going to close public comment on this item. Commissioner Haney. Well, I want to thank everyone who, who came out um, after a long day at, at school to come here and to speak so powerfully on this. I really appreciate you all being here and uh, appreciate UESF and, and your leadership. Um, I would echo uh, some of the comments that were made by Supervisor Campos and, and Commissioner Wins. Um, you know, I think that this is and has been for some, for some time a total and complete crisis. Um, we have a situation where we know from the numbers that our educators cannot afford to live in the city that they work. Now. What I would like to see is solutions that are as big as the challenge that we face. Um, we should have solutions that are as big and or as, as urgent um, as the situation that we just heard from, from, from our educators uh, tonight. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that has been challenging, and I think Commissioner Wins alluded to this, is that there are general solutions that, that address the affordability crisis and that move us forward in some way in providing more access to housing. But what does that mean for, for educators? How do we develop solutions that actually get us to a point where we don't have as many folks as we do now being pushed out of the city, spending 50 plus percent of their income on housing? Um, what, what I would like to see, and I think Supervisor Campos uh, uh, spoke to this, is we know the problem, we know the scale of it. What would it look like to put together a real plan to address that? so that we could say that none of our new hires in, in San Francisco and none of our teachers who've been here for 20 years are in a situation where we know from the numbers, we just know straight off, that they're going to be in a, in a situation that is basically impossible for them to afford housing in the city. So could we get to a point where we could say, we, we, we know that based on the numbers, none of our employees are going to be spending more than 30% of their, their income on housing. Um, and we know that from looking at what's in front of us. And, and if we don't, if, if, if we, if we know that, that we, how far we are from that now, uh, then we should consider this a crisis and we should act as though it's a crisis. Um, because I think that the sustainability of the entire public education enterprise and the idea of great public schools for all of our students is at stake in whether or not we are able to actually address this issue. So a couple things that I would love to see the, the, the Educator Housing Task Force uh, consider and um, hopefully uh, moving forward when we continue this conversation and thank you Supervisor Kim for, for, for bringing this forward um, we can hear about some of these different ideas um, we know that other cities and other school districts are building housing uh, we have a tremendous amount of land that, that um, um, Principal Sanchez brought up um, where are those sites 
What are other school districts and cities doing? How can we replicate some of those approaches here in San Francisco? Um, we also um, know that um, there are different sorts of rent subsidies, rent support programs that, that the, the city can consider, um, and other types of direct support that we can maybe cr find creative funding mechanisms for to actually address the fact that no educator should be spending a certain percentage, of, more than a certain percentage of their salary on housing. So how could we actually create a formula where we're able to get much closer to what is a livable situation for our educators and to be creative about how we think about that? Um, the other thing is that we heard that, that many educators are f facing eviction um, and need emergency support. We heard, we talked tonight about a very innovative approach that we have around this to, to uh, when it comes to homeless families. Why can't our teachers have, have similar types of support? If they're facing eviction, they shouldn't feel alone and, and not supported by their district or by, or by their city. Um, what type of uh, emergency support should they have um, in eviction prevention, in, in defense, in, in funding to, to get them so that they can not just stay in their housing, but if they need to find other housing, and how, what role is this is the district going to play in that? In, in coordination with the city, I think that the the, the district, uh, the school district, our school district needs to to view ourselves in an entirely different new way when it comes to supporting educators and housing, and the information that we provide, and the counseling we provide, and the support that we provide. And I think that the what's exciting maybe about this opportunity that is different than in past years when this has been. Uh, part of the conversation is that we're all at the table now and we're actually trying to come up with constructive solutions. We have UESF, we have the city, we have the school district, and we're, we've built this task force. Let's, th let's use this task force to consider all of these different options and many more uh, as a way to actually develop um, the solutions that are big enough to the challenge that we, we face and that we heard about tonight. And I think that we do have uh, more at our disposal uh, now in terms of resources. Uh, resources should not be a barrier in light of the fact um, that this city, as we know, um, is, is exploding with resources that if we cannot meet this foundational expectation that we, we should have that all of our educators should be able to make enough and be supported enough to live and thrive in the city that, that they work. Um, I, I think that's just a basic foundational thing that we should be able to put together a plan to actually meet. So um, I I, I'm looking forward to further Thank updates you. from this task force. And I think that there's a lot of potential uh, to actually to, to, to meet this needs and solve this problem. Thank you, Commissioner Haney. Um, we will definitely take a motion to continue this item. And I do want to say I'm glad that the district and uh, the mayor's office of housing is working together um, because the only way that we can solve uh, this crisis is for the city to partner um, with the school district. And I want to acknowledge that while some work has been done, it's really hard to hear when you know that the fruition of that work won't happen for years. Um, so whether that is 1950 mission or even our recent win with the Giants, and I want to acknowledge UESF's leadership in negotiating with um, my team in my office to ensure that we we're getting 40% um, affordable housing and an unprecedented number of middle-income housing between 90 yeah. to 150 percent AMI. Um, close to 30 percent of that will be for middle-class housing, and we've never seen a development like that before. But we know that that project um, will not be 
will not have teachers walking through that door for many years, um, and that's often the case, and they still have to go through the approval process, and that there's a real need today. Um, I look forward to the conversation. Many of the options that were mentioned, um, I'm familiar with much of the school district surplus property and uh, worked on the surplus property resolution when I was on the board, um, whether it's the current SOTA site, um, principal center, um, other large sites where we can examine building teacher housing where there's no cost to the land. Um, to the district, but I know it's challenging because once you accept federal and state dollars, you can't discriminate based on profession, and so that really means um, putting in our own money or getting private dollars to fund teacher housing, and that's one of the major barriers is actually um, we need federal and state to change their laws um, to allow us to um, prioritize or just build housing for educators, which we can't do with those dollars. Um, and so I think some of that work needs to happen, but I also think maybe we should look at the flexibility of rental subsidies um, in the meantime, because that doesn't require brick and mortar. That can happen um, immediately um, with, with funding uh, that, that exists. Um, so I want to thank, actually, Commissioner Fewer um, asked us to hear this item today. So thank you for bringing this item. I'm glad to hear that we are making some headway, but um, we really, I think there's urgency in this work, and we'd like to um, get some actual outcomes um, in the next year for this. And I want to thank all the committee members. Clearly, everyone is passionate about this item. I'm going to take a motion to continue this to the call of the chair, and we have that motion. We can do that without any opposition. Um, we will hear this item again. Um, Madam Clerk, are there any other items? Uh, we have item number three. Oh, thank you. We do have item number three. I did ask SFMTA um, to come back um, to the October meeting to present first um, because I, we've run out of time. Um, but Madam Clerk, can you call item number three? I know we have to take public comment on that item. Item number three is a hearing regarding updates on the free Muni for Youth program and requesting the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency to report. Thank you. So um, SFMTA did um, release them so that they didn't have to sit for two hours. Um, that being said, we do have to take public comment on this item. Um, is there any public co uh, comment on this item? Seeing none, public comment is closed. I do want to acknowledge Supervisor Campos, uh, without whom this program would not exist, so thank you. But we will be discussing in October, and I will certainly give you an opportunity to speak on this item. Um, can we take a motion to continue this to the October Select Committee meeting? We have that motion. We can do that without opposition. Madam Clerk, are there any other items? There's no further business. Meeting is adjourned.